Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Magnum Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to people. Hey, everybody. A lot of energy today, Spencer. I am fired up. We're doing the last episode of HBO's Chernobyl. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to... I'm just going out on a limb here. I don't think we're going to do another show where we just have so little negative to say about it. You know, it is possible. I aspire to the idea we're going to find just an array of shows going forward that are just so pristine and such a delight to speak about that even when we're criticizing it, we're delighting in how it still chose to go about. But I think the odds are probably against that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's incredible how every episode, that's every episode is a little bit different, obviously, but they're all quality. And I don't, I don't come to the pod with, okay, here's what I like, here's what I didn't like. It's really just a bunch of shit I liked. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're on episode five of HBO's Chernobyl. It's called Vichnaya Pemyet. Um, and uh, I guess we can do a little housekeeping. So we have been pretty good about getting the whiskey on the weekends out every Friday. We have one teed up for this Friday, too. Um, so this is going to release tomorrow, which is October 22nd. It's a Thursday. The following day, we'll have a whiskey on the weekends for you. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Quality it's, material for our audience. It's good. I, and I promise on this episode, I did no trickeration with Spencer. You say this now. <laughs> uh, and then we have Mangum Reads, Spencer. Mangum Reads? Uh, Mangum Reads. Uh, we have been... Are, can I talk about our additional extra show yet, or has that still not been released yet? You know, I don't actually it, look at our releases to know. It's not been released, but you can talk about it. So I, I think uh, the latest Whiskey on the Weekends recording we did, BJ talked about it. Okay, well, it, uh, as you may hear there, we are doing a chapter-by-chapter read-through of Harry Potter from three different perspectives. A pod so within a pod. A pod within a pod of where we have perspective of a diehard long-term fan who's actually reading through the copy that she got in London when it came out originally when she was a small child. Uh, a jaded, bitter, missing She sounds great. Yeah, you know, I imagine you have, she has a personal appeal to you. Uh, <laughs> a jaded misanthrope who hates all things and wishes to bash things that other people love. And me, who has never read anything related to Harry Potter before and has seen one and a half movies. And together we're doing a variety of perspectives and a variety of little snippets as we read chapter by chapter. Some of us for the, upon repeated viewings, some of us for the first time since they were 19, and some of us for the first time ever. And it's been a delight so far as we're up to about chapter four. Yeah, I'm really excited for that to start coming out. I think that's going to be very popular. I mean, people love Harry Potter. People like quick hitting podcasts. I mean, this is spoiler alert. This isn't going to be one of them. Um, but, but those I think are. So I think that's a really cool thing you guys are doing. Maybe I'll join one. Maybe. Maybe I'll come out of Mangum Reed's retirement. Again, you had one of our greatest, most fun episodes that you just suddenly chose to participate in having read like 20 pages of the book and a Wikipedia entry. And it was a delight. So whatever you join in is, adds to the experience. And those were Kindle pages too. So... <laughs> Otherwise, continuing the mainline show, we did a short story this week by Ursula K. Le Guin entitled She Unnames Them, a kind of response to a certain line in Genesis of when Adam names all of the animals of the world. And it was a delightful read and a lot of fun to talk about as we spent roughly two hour, roughly an hour and a half discussing a 900-word text. But that's just the nature of what we do. Yep, indeed. Um, okay, cool. So let's jump into the episode. We're going to do a recap, all award best line, and then Spencer, you can go into a Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, are you going to do another um, in the, the vein of the Wikipedia Spiral of the Weeks you've been doing with this uh, Cherno these Chernobyl series where you do another nuclear disaster? I am, and I've decided to move on to the most recent and since Chernobyl most severe nuclear accident that's occurred on Earth. Uh, that would be Fukushima. So I will be doing the best I can to tr limit myself to 30, pa to 30 minutes for what is it a very extensive topic. 
But before then, I'm going to delight in seeing how much in the last few weeks of us doing this you have learned about Russian RBMK reactors and their functioning. I think by this stage you have a probably more experience than Toptonov did at the time he was working in the reactor. I, I, yeah, well, a couple things. Uh, one is you don't need to feel self-conscious about the going long thing. I caught so much shit for giving you, <laughs> like you, you like, people like you so much more than they like me. It's not, it's not even close. That's ah, uh, not true. Two on the pods. Uh, number two, I feel as confident as Toptonoff does. I will tell you that. So it's an app comparison. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Let's get in the recap. We got to a montage of Pripyat. Obviously this is before the explosion. Uh, one thing I really like about this is that everybody's happy except for Dyatlov. That seems on brand. Hashtag on brand. Um, we see a number of characters we haven't seen since the first episode. We see the guy who wanted the cigarette uh, mm-hmm. and then laughed when all the rain from the uh, the fire hoses, well, not rain, but the water from the fire hoses was coming in. Uh, to the building, we see Anatoly Sitnikov. And this is the poor chap who was actually sent to look at the reactor by Foman and Brokhanov. Mm-hmm. We see some folks swimming. Looks like a nice pool. Yeah, it's a delightful little Russian city. I mean, it is. We are seeing the perks of a planned living. We're seeing the ha- what will be the happiest day this city will see for the rest of its history. Yeah, well, one of the last. <laughs> uh, we see the father, who's in a blue jacket. I don't, I don't, didn't catch his name. You probably have it, um, but it's not really important. He's the one who went to the Bridge of Doom to look at the fire. Who asked Ludmilla to go, and Ludmilla said, uh, uh, "I'm good. There might be chemicals." Um, yeah. and he, we also saw him again later when Ludmilla saw him in the hospital with radiation burns and he was trying to give his baby away. Tough scene. Yeah, the scripts list his name as Mikhail. So good enough for me. Yeah, that works. Then we see shitbag Dyatlov walking in, <laughs> pissed off in a horrendous blue sport coat. I mean, my God, I mean, I understand this is the eighties in the Soviet union, but this is particularly bad. Um, and this is going to be a theme of this episode. I'm going to shit all over Dyatlov because he's a, uh, he's a they give person. They give you material to work with there. Oh, indeed. It's April 25th, 1986, 12 hours before the explosion. Then we see Foman talking to Dyatlov. So uh, they're in an office of some kind. They're on the other side of a desk, so presumably not either one of their offices. And he's musing about the idea of Brukhanov being promoted once the test is successful. And him taking Brukhanov's position. Now, as somebody who works in a corporate sort of apparatus, these conversations happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, oh, yeah. Totally. Oh, that person's going to get promoted? Then that, then that, then that. Four, like six degrees of separation later, maybe I'll get a promotion. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's so very authentic to the corporate setting that as he's pondering his own promotion, he's turning to one of his subordinates and saying, you know what? If I'm promoted, maybe I can help you too. We'll see. Or maybe Sitnikov. We'll see. Who knows? And isn't it funny that we are we are comparing a communist apparatus to corporate culture. Oh, I think it cor- says something about humanity, right? Yeah, corporate culture is universal regardless of the government it operates in. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Um, and he says if they, he does take Brokhanov's position, they'd need to find a replacement for him. Uh, Dyatlov seems pissed he even has to say it. <laughs> it's <laughs> but really he, begrudging. <laughs> he does. It's a bit of a flex here by Foman. Um, and he says, I'd like to be considered. Foman just casually says, I'll keep that in mind. Oh, okay, thank you. So, power trip. Yeah, absolutely. And it, power trip he doesn't even have yet. No. He's, Foman, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, uh, he, he's very much planning out his future long before it's actually there. Yeah. Um, Foman is updating Brookenoff about preps for the test. Um, Foman then says they're going to have to wait. Um, or sorry, Brookenoff says they're going to have to wait. Uh, and he makes some comment about Foman being an idiot for not being able to read his face. I just love these. Bo- There's really 
really good case studies of bad bosses in this series. <laughs> like he's mad that the guy didn't read his face and figure out what was supposed to happen with the test. Like it's completely unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brokenoff explains that he's had a call from a grid controller in Kiev and they had to delay because the grid controller told them to. Dyatlov says, a grid controller, where does he get off? Um, and Brokenoff explains it's not his call. It's the end of the month. Everybody's working overtime to meet productivity quotas and they need to stay online. Now, remember, the test requires Reactor 4 to go offline, i.e. not produce any energy for a period of time. Now, Spencer, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. I have read, and I believe we have previously talked about on this podcast, the reason that Chernobyl Reactor 4 had to stay online was because another reactor went out. That now, was what I heard, yes. What I'm positing to you is, could this be the sort of Soviet, like, complete misinformation that Legasov calls out toward the end of this episode? Like, well, we can't admit that one of our reactors went down. So instead, we'll just say, everyone is being too productive. <laughs> you know, I didn't really think of it that way, but yeah, that sounds really on brand, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I totally think, and if, if, by the way, if that's true, shout out to the writers of this show, because that's a subtle, subtle thing they threw in. Right. Uh, Brokhanov asked if they have to scrap the test. Foman says, oh, no, they need to wait 10 hours, they wait. Brokhanov asks if the wait will make the reactor unstable. Ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. uh, Foman says, no. Brokhanov says, I'm not asking you. <laughs> right. <laughs> really great. He's talking to Dyatlov, obviously, who's done this for 25 years, which we hear later. Um, Dyatlov says, no, it's fine. He'll go home, get some sleep, come back and oversee the test himself. Brokhanov says, great, call me when it's done. Foman walks around the desk, gets on the other side, really smug, self-important, clearly thinking it's going to be his. Okay, so I flew through that early scene. Anything you want to talk about? No, and it's, it's a very interesting scene because at this point, we don't really have the full degree of knowledge as to, what occur, as, as to what's occurring right here. We know it's background. We know it's a lead in. And we have, you know, an idea that what they're talking about right now is going to prove disastrous. But we really don't know until the trial how dumb what they're planning actually is. Yeah, yeah. Zenon. Um, <laughs> we cut to Moscow, March 1987. Uh, Legasov is getting a paper and some cigs. He's approached by someone, gets into a car, and he's met by Charkov. Uh, Charkov, you'll remember, is the head of the KGB at the time. And he asks Legasov how his health is. I think that's a shitty thing to do. <laughs> because Legasov, Legasov yeah, apparently agrees. His immediate response is, you don't know. Yeah, it's tough because, I mean, Legasov knows that Charkov knows that he's sick. He's sick because he went to an area with exposed nuclear reactor. Um, but he still throws that in there. Mm -hmm. How is your health? Um, <laughs> Charkov is holding a paper. He reads from it. At last, a Soviet scientist who tells the truth. Um, at this point, we're meant to know that Legasov went to Vienna and he towed the Soviet line, which mm -hmm. is what which is what Boris told him to do. And we're, we're also now realizing that... In doing so, he reached a deal with the KGB with respect to his testimony. If I testify the party line, you will fix these things. And yep. we're starting to see that the KGB is not as dedicated to f fulfilling their end of the bargains they may have originally represented. Yeah, and that, that comes up. So Charkov says he's going, Legasov is going to receive hero of the Soviet Union, our highest honor, which Charkov throws in. He hasn't even received yet. <laughs> <laughs> what self-important fuck? Well, I haven't even gotten that. That's a big deal. There's a lot of assholes in this episode in particular. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and that he's going to be promoted to the director of the Cherkov Institute. But it's not his yet. 
He has to testify at the trial of Foman, Brokenoff, and Dyatlov. These are apparently the fall guys. Which, if you go back to episode one, um, when the very first uh, scene, when we hear Legasov, you know, basically recording his memoirs, he, he talks about these guys being the fall guys. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, in, it's an interesting point to discuss here, because this episode with this plot line is one of the furthest uh, separations the show gets from we, what we have and are aware of is the truth. Is that the show is now going to have Legasov, Boris, and Komyuk testify at the trial. Which, as far as we know, secret trial, details sketchy, they did not do. This, well, I know, I know Kumyok didn't. She doesn't exist. Well, yeah, that one was an easy one for me to say for that reason, yes. <laughs> but this is one of the examples, again, of the show is telling a narrative. That these characters have been here from the beginning on the show in solving this problem. And the creators clearly thought that they needed to be here at the end. As part of an arc for the characters. It separates from the truth. But... What the show's main objective is, is to tell a concrete, understandable story that people will be invested in and learn more about the actual events because of it. And so this is one of the examples of how they've changed to fit that kind of narrative. Well, and I I do think it aligns somewhat with history in the sense that, you know, Boris really did become close with Legasov. Sure. And and Legasov did fly in the face of the KGB multiple times to the point that when he died, he was in a very small apartment and he was writing. And just shout out to you. You're right about this. He actually wrote his memoirs. He didn't say them out loud. The, they the, were recorded well, later. Right. It was audio tapes that circulated. So they simplified it. And this is this is an essential. Essentially, you could treat this as one of two things if you want to try to assign it into the history. It's them condensing years and months of separate events into a singular event that did not necessarily occur, but is representative. Or it's playing into a kind of secret history, secret trial kind of narrative that maybe events occurred at this trial, maybe participation occurred that wasn't recorded rather purposefully based on what you see at the end of this episode. Right. Either way, I don't have a problem with it. No, my God. Legasov pushes back, <coughs> excuse me, uh, great radio, coughing the mic, saying Sharkov um, had given him assurances that the other's re- reactors would be outfitted to remove the flow, uh, the flaw in the, the control ruts. Legasov points out no changes had been made or planned. Now, I don't know how he knows about plan, but it's been made. <laughs> Sharkov says, first the trial. We will have our villains. We will have our hero. We will have our truth. After that, we can deal with the reactors. That's my first nomination for best line of the episode. Mm-hmm. Legasov clearly doesn't believe him. Um, Spencer, do you? No. God, no. No. Not even... Even admitting this in secret would be admitting a flaw in the, in the all-too-great apparatus of the Soviet Union. They are fully content that they can buy off the individuals that have knowledge, give them positions of prestige, and work under work with the contentment that maybe with revised sa- training standards for the incompetent workers, they can avoid this actual technical fault ever being relevant again. They have no intention of fixing this because it would be too much of a greater risk of admitting that something had gone wrong. I agree. I don't believe it either. Um, Although I'm glad you hit on that last point, which was, yeah, they would probably take steps to ensure it doesn't happen again. But those steps wouldn't be anything that you could figure out, you know, if you're an outside organization, outside uh, government. They'd be grounding it in what they admitted in Vienna. That this was a human error. These were incompetent individuals on the ground. It's not something we could have expected that people would be this dumb or dangerous or whatever else. And we're fixing that issue. Because that is, it's one of the things after any disaster, people by their nature want to blame the human element rather than something structural or institutional. And I'm sure those forces are all the greater in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Cuts to Legasov. He's in an apartment. Um, now, remember, this is, this is also deviating from the truth. Um, Legasov had a family. 
Uh, and he lived with his family until he died. Uh, he had wife and a couple kids <clears throat> who were still alive, which you think is why they, they didn't even include them. They didn't just want to go down that route. But he's working and he sees that his hair is falling out. And he doesn't seem overly surprised. And that's not surprising for us as the audience because Legosoft did say, hey, we're going to be dead in a couple years. Like, mm-hmm. this is, we're, we, are, we are getting way too much radiation just trying to navigate the cleanup, you know, and, and, and dealing with the immediate acute situation. He's a bit somber. He hits a cig, goes back to work. There's a knock on the door. It's Yulana Komyok. Again, fictional character, but meant to represent all of the scientific workers who aided Legasov in uh, all of the events that immediately preceded the explosion at Reactor 4. And Legasov wants to know if she took a train. She says yes. She says he's not there to talk about Vienna, so she kind of cuts him off, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, I kind of expected her to be more angry here, but she isn't. I don't know about you, Spencer. No, she really has an interesting res- initial response. As I think I wrote down, is I haven't come to scold you. I know how the world works. I'm a realist, no matter what Sherbina thinks. And that really surprised me. As you like you, I was fully expecting her to go in and attack him here. But she's being very practical about. I know why you did it. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to convince you that this next step is where you have to now commit. Yep. Uh, Legasov says Charkov told him that they would fix the reactors after the trial. Yulana <laughs> gives the response that I think both me and you would do and say, do you believe him? Legasov scoffs. Uh, he says they will, she says they will never be fixed because the reactors, uh, because doing so, fixing the reactors because doing so, uh, admits there's a problem and that they lied. Yeah. And then she starts to reframe the discussion to your point about the upcoming trial. She says they'll have to be forced to fix the reactors. Basically, they're not going to do it on their own. We have to force their hand. Not an easy thing to do with the Soviets, by the way. Uh-uh. They're not known for getting their hand forced. Um, she says you need to tell the truth at the, file, at the trial. Not to change the outcome, but to change the hearts and minds of the scientists who were there. I think these are the scientists from the Charkoff Institute. Mm-hmm. Doing so will give uh, force to massive changes to the nuclear energy program in the Soviet Union. Basically saying they need us. They, they, if, if we all, it's like a, a kind of like a unionizing thing that's happened in the Soviet Union. At least that's kind of how she's presenting it. Like, hey, if all of us nuclear scientists just say, no, we're not going to do this work anymore until you fix some things, that maybe they'll do it. I don't know if that would work, but that's kind of her, her framing here. And it's an important distinction of where Legosov originally just kind of rejects the idea, saying it's a show trial. The jury's already been given the verdict; they're going to deliver. Who am I going to try to convince? And as you said, she frames it as you're not trying to convince the state jury; you're trying to convince the scientists that have been ordered to be there. Yep. Um, Legosov says, "No, no, no. Do you know what happened to Volkov, the man whose report you found?" Uh, and just for the listeners, so that the, the report that she found from Volkov is the one that noted the flaw in the design of the RBMK reactor, which is that their boron control rods have graphite tips. Um, Do you think these scientists, uh, he said they just removed him from his position at the Institute, sacked for the crime of knowing. Do you think these scientists handpicked to witness a sure trial will somehow be stirred into action by me because of some heroic stance I take in defiance of the state? Really powerful response here. She says, yes, like stuff, why? Because you are Valery Legasov and you mean something. Woo! Love that line. I also love her, uh, her the humility in her next statement. I'd like to think if I spoke out, it would be enough. But as I said, I know how the world works. He represents something now. He is a, sim- is a symbol to his people, the scientific community. And if he throws himself on his sword, they will take notice. Yep. Um, 
Legasov says they'll shoot him. She doesn't blink. Gangster move here from Yolanda. Just doesn't even. She's like, I know. I know they might shoot you, but mm-hmm. you know what? Got to do it. He says he told her to figure. She says, you told me to figure out what happened. All right. And I did. I wrote everything down in these books. These are the ones who are still alive. These are the ones who are dead. They died rescuing each other, putting out fires, tending to the wounded. They didn't hesitate. They didn't waver. They simply did what had to be done. Legasov gets the implication. She's comparing Legasov's testimony at the trial with the sacrifices that these guys made in the immediate aftermath of the explosion he says he's already given his life by going willingly to an open reactor where we saw the evidence of that earlier his hair's falling out he says isn't that enough no i'm sorry but it's not now a couple things i want to talk about here mm-hmm. uh one yulana would just drive me fucking crazy <laughs> yeah she's she- too right about everything that always pisses me off with people if people are too right i don't like it yeah, I mean, it's one of the things where Legosov knows she's right, that she is speaking for the public good. She is telling him what is necessary right now. But it is just such a cold, rigid, absolute moral correctness. It is yeah. un- unassailable and uncompromising. As you said, that would f- that'd be a frustrating person to have as a friend around you daily. It doesn't just mean an- they're wrong. Yeah, just annoys the piss out of you. She would really annoy me. But yeah, she is right. But I'd also like to point out... Um, how this is this line here that she throws out there they die rescuing each other putting out fires tension to the wound. they didn't hesitate they didn't waver they simply did what had to be done i think is indicative of like okay well this this show ended up a little bit different than the russian government thought it was going to be initially they hated it um but lines like this i think kind of flipped them oh yeah and if, once we get to the very last line of this episode i was once again in tears when i watched it and i bet a lot of the soviet censors that were screening this had a similar reaction were you really in tears? Is okay. We discussed this off-cast. Misty and a little sniffly is as close as I get. Give me that. I, just, I'm human. I have reactions, ish. Just so everybody knows, Spencer's not the crying type. Um, <laughs> we cut to Legasov and Boris. Kind of crying. Sure, yeah. Okay. You get Misty. Fair enough. Cut to Legasov and Boris on the way to the trial. Um, Spencer, a uh, real technical question here for you. I've been, um, you know, obviously deep diving here into what an RBMK reactor is and the science behind it. Mm-hmm. Why in the sand fuck is the trial being held in Chernobyl? Uh, to clearly demonstrate to the people and the world, even though it's a relatively secret trial, that this is safe. We have fixed this. And we are going back to the location of the sin to punish those who are responsible. It is a powerful, symbolic demonstration of not only conquering the circumstances, but punishing those where they inflicted them. But it's such transparently bullshit. Oh, yeah, of course. Because they it's in, in the exclusion zone. They don't let anybody else go. Yeah, yeah, but you know. You can't live there, but they can go there for an hour and a half trial. What? In reality, the trial took like two weeks, so they were there a ways. But well, maybe uh, got damn cancer. Uh, but it's one of those things of where, yeah, it's bullshit. It's obviously bullshit. It's see-through bullshit, but it is symbolically relevant. That's what they care about right now. Jesus, haunting music plays as they go. Yet again, motif all the way through. The haunting music plays when they approach radiation. Uh, they see tons of abandoned automobiles, all during, all clearly used during the cleanup. Um, that have been abandoned, likely with tons of radiation. You actually hear stories about that, where people um, have gone to, you know, the exclusion zone on a Chernobyl tour, which you really want to do because you've got a death wish. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, th- there will be like really big, like bulldozers or trucks or something, and and they'll just tell you, oh yeah, don't go over there. That one was used <laughs> to move the earth. We don't we don't look at that. We don't go to, we don't go to that one, right? We don't, we don't go close to that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things of where 
there are certain things that will continue to uh, continue to um, maintain radiation levels for long periods of time. And metal trucks are definitely up there, as yeah. well as apparently firefighter firefighter uh, uniforms too. Yeah, yeah, which I think we've talked about on the pod, but we we're also going to talk about it here. Uh, inside, uh, Roose Bolton, head of House Bolton, warden of the North, is opening the trial. <laughs> Again, there are like ten actors in the nation of in the nation of the United Kingdom. It really is fun to see the entire cast of Game of Thrones shuffed into this show. I know. I didn't expect Roose Bolton to be the prosecutor here, but he is. And then he reads the indictments against Yatlov, Fulman, and Brokhanov. Boris is set to testify. Boris Sherbina. Uh, he starts with "If you can of all things," with a safety test. Here's what's interesting to me. Like, in a bit of irony, remember when when Gorbachev asked uh, Sherbina, Boris Sherbina, if he knew how a reactor worked, nuclear mm-hmm. reactor worked? And he's like, he said no. It clearly embarrassed him in this meeting. Mm-hmm. And he got, now, a, he got, he got, he got a little spitball uh, demonstration from uh, Legosov when they're flying a helicopter over. Now he's the one in the trial of the people who they're, you know, throwing under the bus for this who has to explain how a nuclear reactor works. Yeah, and he does it really well to the point that you can even see the various reactions from Legosov and Komiuk where they're visibly impressed at how well he's presenting this. Yeah, he, he does it well. Um, uh, he points out that the reactor had been operational for some time, even though it still needed to complete the safety test. Mm-hmm. He mentions that Brukhanov signed the document saying that construction was complete, and because it was signed before the end of the year, everybody got awards. <laughs> but, but... What do what actually is the truth about its uh, official state of completeness? Well, well, first off, and this is something the show doesn't address. There were other structural problems with how they constructed uh, reactor four. Um, there were like like fault lines and the concrete. There was a bunch of shit that wouldn't go up to any code of any nuclear reactor in the West. Well, first off, RBMK reactors wouldn't be made in the West because they're too terrible. But even if they were going to allow an RBMK reactor to be built in the West. They, there was just very basic things about how you construct these things that were screwed up. Of course, the, the, the number one is a design flaw with the uh, graphite-tipped boron rods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, go ahead. We, we, but with, we can go through a very long list of the ways that this particular device was fucked, both in its design and its structure and its operation. But for this little particular one, it was an element of a test that... For this plant to be in full operation, they had to perform. This test being its ability to operate without power, essentially running on the just continued inertia of the turbine still spinning for the, what was it, was it a minute necessary for them to get the diesel reactor up and going? Yeah, so basically the reactor can survive with about 10 seconds of not having water flushed into the core. Mm-hmm. And without it starting to lose balance, without it starting to, the reactivity starting to get out of control. Mm-hmm. But it takes about a minute for the diesel, backup diesel generators, once the power flicks off, to come online and to flush water in the core. About a 50 second period. So the Soviets, very smart, they said, oh, well, we still have that residual energy from the turbine. Why don't we reroute it down to, um, to the water pumps that were previously run on electricity before the power outage, and it'll just continue to flush water in the core until the diesel backup diesel generators with their water pumps get going. Great. Which is perfectly Good legitimate science. It's actually a reasonable idea. Hard to test, though. Well, it, 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 it is and it isn't. Um, because what they should have done is brought the thing online and then not at, like, because like, it has to be online, right, for you to test it. Mm-hmm. 
but they should have just been doing that test like every two days when it first came online. But you know exactly what happened is that it came online because of a demand for energy. Mm-hmm. And they had to start using it in full force right away. And as we find out in this episode, in order to run the test, you really have to lose a lot of the capacity for that reactor to generate energy on a particular day. Yeah, it has to be reduced. Well, I think they were maintaining it at half of its uh, actual normal thermal um, megajoule level, uh, megawatt half. level. Yeah, half, and then it has to go completely offline, and then they have to bring it back on and then scale the reactivity all the way back up. So it, 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 it you know, obviously that that's the reason that it got delayed is because it they lose a bit of energy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, he eventually gets to what was wrong with the plant, which is, we, we talked about, the difference between the time it takes for the backup diesel generators to come online and start flushing the water in the core, and the amount of time the core can remain stable without water being flushed into the core. He explains the point of the test was to verify the residual energy from the moving turbine could power the pumps. We, we covered that. Mm-hmm. Skarsgård, who's the actor here who plays Boris Sherbina, does a hell of a job acting, I thought, because he's... He, at first it starts subtle, but then later it's not so subtle. He's holding back a cough. Yeah. It's like all he can do to get, he's do all he can do to get through this. And at one point you notice he asks any questions at a very unnatural place to ask if they have questions Mm -hmm. because he just choked down a cough. And the judge is like, well, no, like this is a weird spot to be asking (laughs) me that, but he just bought himself like 10 seconds. Yeah, that's a good call. I hadn't actually really thought about that, but that is a really good job of acting on his part because it's not until after his testimony we see in what poor state of health he is. Yep. He then turns his attention to the men on the trial. Quote, the science is strong, but a test is only as good as the men carrying it out. The first time they tried, they... F- oh, I'm not doing my Skarsgård voice. I need to go. Please, please. The first time they tried, they failed. The second time they tried, they failed. The third time they tried, they failed. The fourth time they tried, it was April 26, 1986. And that's his mic drop. Boris' testimony is over. And Kalmyuk is called up. Oh, yeah. I expected her to be a little more fiery than she really was. Um, So far, everything's going according to plan. She starts by going over events 10 hours before the explosion. Preparation for the test, they lowered the power. Then they got a call from Kiev. Said they couldn't afford for Reactor 4 at Chernobyl to go offline until after midnight. I like the squishy explanation she has of this, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't afford to. Well, that, that works with both of the scenarios we previously talked about that right. actually, well, they, they're trying to meet productivity quotas or another reactor went down. Yeah, it's delightfully general. <laughs> um, they want a 10-hour delay. Competent management would have canceled the test, but these three men allowed it to proceed. She explains it's problematic for two reasons. One is scientific, one is human. When she drops this line from the way the camera cuts... We're led to think that Legasov is going to cover the scientific problem. Because she says there's a scientific problem, cut to Legasov, they make eye contact. Then she said she's covering the human one. She explains that there's a shift change at midnight. We cut back to the flashback. We're following Toptonov, who just gets off the bus. And he is getting changed for work. And the older men are giving him shit. Because <laughs> he's uh, all of, what, 24 right now? He's a, he's a child compared to these 20. people. 25 he says he's just a little boy they make fun of his facial hair all very basic old guy giving young guy shit stuff of course you know anatony sidnikov comes in he's the guy who looked at the reactor core and he says that akimov wants to see lino tuptanov in the control room as soon as he can something about a test um so we've we've entered a period of this courtroom drama where the testimony is being interspersed with a flashback to the events they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Which, which is much more compelling way to do testimony. If they could do that in a real trial of where me delivering testimony suddenly conjures actors to demonstrate that in front of a jury, 
really would be much more effective in persuading a jury. So I'm very fond of this docudrama way of demonstrating her testimony. <laughs> that's a funny thought. Spencer says, and that's when my defendant said, no, I will not forge these documents. And then shuffle out. <laughs> no, I will not forge the documents. Okay, come back to Spencer. <laughs> As you can see, as played out, it of course happened this way because you saw it. Thank you. Yes. Uh, anyway, there you go. Where's my check? Mm -hmm. uh, that could be line of the episode, by the way, if we wanted to go a little sideways with it. Something about a test. Yeah, that is a haunting little line right there. Uh, Leonid walks in. Leonid Toptenoff walks in. He greets Akimov, and Akimov explains that the turbine rundown test. So even their understanding of what the test is is off. No, they're all reading this for the very first time because they're not the team that should have been doing it. It's not a, I mean, turbine rundown. Yeah, the turbine does run down, but it's, it's a, basically a test on power failure. Yeah. That um, they tried last year was being given to them. Leonid immediately balks and says they weren't trained, aren't ready. Akamov is trying to assure him. It's a good guy move, right? And, and we see this from Akamov throughout this, you know, throughout the show, really. Well, the first two episodes and then the flashback in the fifth episode my question for you spencer is this really a good guy move or is it ultimately a overly confident super bad guy move by akimov it's a it's a mix between the two and it's clearly something that's he's warring with inside himself akimov's the only person that's willing to confront dyatlov directly really forcefully in front of his co-workers he eventually backs down even then under threat of i want it in writing that you did this but we see in his mind that he knows that he's doing wrong by doing this. That he knows that by supporting this, by being one of the ones that's directly there handling it, he is be bearing the guilt as much as he wants to put it back on Dyatlov. And we can see him repeating to himself. It's his most repeated line throughout this series. Yeah. We did everything right. We did everything right. <laughs> yeah, that's his mantra. He was about to say it for the first time soon. And that's actually the last line we hear him say. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's when he's in such a bad shape that they don't even show him on camera. As Yulana walks out, he says, we did everything right. And they, they strongly imply it's like his last words were that. Because, you know, in the case of Topinov, they say it, I think, in this, that he died the day after his testimony to her. And I'm guessing Akimov was probably a similar thing. Well, and then they made it clear that, that Akimov was actually in a worse, you know, sort of shape no than Topinov. So, yeah, that very well, yeah, very well could have been his last, uh, uh, his last words. Uh, just an important little bit, a fun little bit of trivia here, too. Um, the three guys that we see on trial were the main three that were convicted, but two other people that were officially going to be subject to trial at this trial were Akimov and Toptonov. Is that they were going to be blamed by the state too, and it was only their death that prevented them from being part of the show trial as well. <laughs> oh, God, that makes me mad. I wish you hadn't told me that. Sorry. Oh, boy. It I pissed mean, me off those, too. Those fuckers went down for eight hours trying to flush water into a core that didn't exist on the off chance it could possibly help. I think that, I think that clears the charges. Yeah, and Ugh. did what they did in the room that day with a metaphorical gun to their heads by by their, by their superiors. It, yeah, it, it's disgusting. Yeah, I would I would like to know just like had the, have the Soviets like posthumously given them any awards or do they still consider them somehow like criminal? Like you you know you know how like, like states will do that right after yep. you know some sort of event somebody dies ten years later they say okay well now we've re looked at the situation and they get some sort of posthumous award. I can say that at the time, their families received letters basically just saying what I told you, that your fam your now dead family member would be subject to prosecution if they had lived, and it is only for the sake of their death that they are not. 
Well, ship moved there by the Soviet Union. I guess that's not too much of a surprise. Um, we get to Akimov. Uh, he's explaining that Yatlov will be supervising Leonid uh, with this really great line. I have to do something I've never done before with Yatlov looking over my shoulder? <laughs> that sounds like such a nightmare. Akimov again tries to assure him. He says, look, dude, we're good. He pulls out the instructions. And some of them are marked out. Leonid, with a super reasonable question, are we supposed to do those? <laughs> To which, I love this, Akimov picks up the phone. I'm guessing he's calling the prior shift worker that was actually supposed to do the damn tests and asks, uh, yeah, we've been looking at the test. There's a list of programs and instructions. Some are crossed out. What should we... Are you sure? Okay. He comes back to him and says, we're supposed to do the crossed out ones. <laughs> which... Yeah, no, it's actually the guy, if you, you go back, it's actually the guy who previously tried the test. Yeah, that, 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 that was what I figured. Yeah, yeah, so that's who he's talking to and he... <laughs> He comes back and says, um, yeah, we're, we're supposed to do the crossed out ones. Leonid, just knowing why, he's a bright kid. Yet another super reasonable question. Then why are they crossed out? <laughs> yeah, questions I would be asking. Yeah, why know, did you man. black out the ones you were supposed to repeat? I know. It really kind of sounds like we could be doing this back and forth. Because if I was Akimov and somebody told me that, I'd go, I don't know. Let's just fucking do it. And you'd be like, well, why were they crossed out? I mean, I think we need more information here. We're going to reach a point of where I'm going to we're going to take a break for a second. I'm going to ask you what you would have done in Akimov and Tokhtanov's situation. And you're going to ask me the same thing. But we'll get to that point in a second. God, we've been doing this pod too long together because I literally have that question in my notes for you. <sighs> God, man, we are. I'll, I'll say it's professional. This is a demonstration of our professionalism rather than mutual descent into insanity. I need this thought. Literally, I've got, as an aside, ask Spencer if he would do what Akimov did. <laughs> Oh, that's <sighs> funny. Um, so Dyatlov walks in. Uh, he says they've been cleared to run the test. 1,600, good 1,600 megawatts. That's, I guess, the amount of energy being generated from the reactor core. Which is about half of what it normally is. Um, and they've they've powered it down. Now, it's been powered down for about 10 hours. That comes into play later. Right. There is a he level says, of instability that has been increasing as a result of this. And we will hear the science from you in a bit. Ugh, ooh, look out. Um, he says, now is it too much to ask that you all know what you're doing? Um, Akimov can be low-key really funny. Like, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout out Akimov here because he just said, yes, absolutely. So if, if you take a strict reading of what he said, he immediately is undermining Dyatlov. But he doesn't know Dyatlov doesn't even catch. He says, is it too much to ask that you all know what you're doing? Yep. Says, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Mathematician's answer. Wonderfully done. He starts asking everyone if they're ready. One guy says, they've only just found out. And Diafloff hurls the instructions at his feet and says, there, review it, or you can just do what I tell you. Even you, stupid as you are, you can manage that. What a shit. <sighs> really don't like this fucking guy. Yeah. They, and they start the test. One of the guys immediately says, I'm supposed to switch the turbine off while the reactor's still running? Like, again, another really good question. <laughs> He's like, that's like, that's like shit not to do 101 mm -hmm. in a nuclear reactor. Uh, Dyatlov tells him to shut up and do his job. He tells Tuptenoff to take the power down to 700. Tuptenoff whispers that he's never done this before. And what he's saying is he's never taken the reactor that low before. And the reason that's important is because there's a, there's a stable level, which is 3,200 megawatts, that you want the reactor at. Because everything is designed for that level. Too high or too low from that, you get away from how it's designed. And so you have to start doing all these artificial things to keep it somewhat balanced and control the amount of reactivity and the energy that comes off of it. So he's panicking here. 
because uh, it's like this is really dangerous. I I can't believe I'm having to do this. And um, Akamov just says it's okay. I'm with you. Yet again, it's this line that we're having to walk with Akamov, where it's like, ah, I don't know. Like he's being a good guy on a person to person level, yeah. but maybe he needed to address the fact that they really shouldn't have been doing it well, earlier being, than he did. He's being a great mid level manager. He's doing that very well. But it's just whether you can reasonably expect the mid-level manager to try to control policy. Yeah. Cut back to Yulana, so we're back in the courtroom. She urges the judges to think of Yuri Gargan. Spencer, who's Yuri Gargan? The first man in space. There it is. Um, yep, the Soviets beat us to that, this one. Uh, they had the first man in space. Not really surprising if you consider the amount of risks they're willing to occur at the individual <laughs> level for the betterment of the state. Like, I think that we probably could have gotten somebody up there, but we didn't really know. We didn't have, like, a super high confidence level that we could get him back, whereas the Soviets just fired the guy up there. It's a mix between that, uh, not necessarily knowing at first that we were competing, and also Soviets, like us, grabbed a hell of a lot of German scientists that worked on their V1 and V2 programs, and they were closer to it than us to grab them. Yulana then goes on to say, I want you to imagine that he has been told nothing of this mission in space until the moment that he is on the launch pad. I want you to imagine that all he has is a list of instructions, which he has never seen before, some of which are crossed out. This is exactly what was happening in the control room of Reactor 4. She's speaking to her audience with that one. That is a reference that they will get and they will be horrified by. She points out that Leonid Toptanov was 25 years old and he'd been on the job for four months. <laughs> she says that inside the core, the space between the atoms, uh, inside the core and in the space between the atoms themselves, something more dangerous is forming. The line is, the time is 28 past midnight, and she hands the baton in this relay off to Legasov. Legasov clearly has been set up to discuss the scientific problem that led to the explosion. Anything you want to talk about about her testimony? No, no. It, honestly, when I was first watching this, I expected her testimony was going to be longer and go into the science herself. But she, it makes sense. She was tasked with investigating the human element of getting the accounts of what was occurring up in that room. And now they're going to let the most respected figure right now in the Soviet Union with respect to nuclear technology handle that testimony. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, Roos Bolton introduces Comrade Legasov. Great shot here of the camera kind of bobbling and weaving a bit. Uh, weaving a bit when, you know, it really is meant to affirm how nervous Legasov is. Uh, a push cart comes out and Legasov uses this to explain the regulating features of a nuclear reactor explains that all operators do really is maintain balance because the only thing that ever happens really uh, in, in a reactor is the reactivity goes up or the reactivity goes down. That's mm -hmm. fundamental at a very basic level. That's what happens. You have things that increase the reactivity and things that decrease the reactivity. These are these controlling functions to, to help create balance. Legasov explains the rich uranium, which causes fission. That's the uranium atoms that split apart and collide that causes reactivity to go up. That's the primary, I mean, that, that's the genesis of reactivity mm -hmm. within a core. But if you don't balance it, it never stops rising. These atoms just keep going and going and going and going. So they have boron control rods. Boron reduces reactivity. He explains that this is like brakes on a car. So you, this is the ability to press the brakes, to use the boron control rods to quickly decrease reactivity that's flying off of this enriched uranium. But there's another factor that we use to decrease reactivity in an RBMK reactor, and that is water. Cool water takes out, takes heat out of the system. Comes in, takes heat out, lowers reactivity, but it does turn the steam. So then you create a void. Void, just empty space, empty space. Then there's this thing called a positive void coefficient. 
Now we're getting technical. Try as I might, I can't tell you what that is on a cellular level, but I can tell you that the more steam present in the system means the more voided area for where the water had came in, and that increases the reactivity. And so the very thing that you're, you're wanting to do with a RBMQ reactor, which is generate the steam that goes up, that spins the turbine, that creates energy, actually increases reactivity. So you, you have to take this into account in this very precarious calculation of things that increase reactivity or decrease it. So generate the, generate the steam, you have a void, positive void co coefficient takes place, increased reactivity, means more steam, means more heat, means more reactivity. So this wouldn't be stable. What causes stability considering the positive void coefficient? With all the things that I just introduced, it wouldn't. This thing would spin out of control and would melt down pretty quickly. At this point, Legosoft drops a slide. <laughs> Great moment. Such a human moment. Very human. Um, Yulana seems uncomfortable by this. Boris, um, I do want to talk about Boris. He, during Legosoft's um, testimony, just seems pained oh, yeah. for his friend. I thought the acting was really good on that. He's suffering with him at this point. He, yeah, I mean, he. I think he has an idea. I'll ask you that question later. I think he has an idea what he's doing. But yeah, he's he's really struggling through this. Um, then we have what's called the negative temperature coefficient. When nuclear fuel gets hotter, it gets less reactive. That's important, right? So as that, that's actually a really like almost like a divine thing, if you think about it. Because as the reactivity goes up with this enriched uranium, with the positive fluid coefficient then the, the the actual temperature of the nuclear fuel gets hotter it gets less reactive and kind of moderates itself so fuel mm -hmm. increases reactivity control rods and water reduce it steam increases it the rise in temperature reduces it. beautiful thing when it's working the way it's supposed to work mm -hmm. as uranium split apart to create energy it breaks down into a new element called xenon this is the first time we hear about xenon basically what xenon is is it's the leftover it's the remainder of what happens after that reaction that, that creates fission, that creates the energy that goes into this longer calculus of reactivity increases and decreases. Xenon reduces reactivity on its own. So this is the poison that they're talking about. They talk about the core being poisoned, it's that it has Xenon. Because see, normally when the core is running at full power, the amount of reactivity and temperature actually burns the Xenon away. So it's kind of a non-factor. It mm -hmm. only comes into play when you drop the energy down. Such as but when? when they kept the reaction so low for so long that the xenon just piled up. This is what they're talking about with the poison core. They're starting to lose balance. Now, this is 28 minutes past midnight. It's less than an hour. and In less than an hour, it's going to explode. And this is a point where he kind of plays to the judge a little bit. He says, don't fault yourself for not knowing how a stalled nuclear reactor could explode. You weren't in the control room that night, but the people who were also didn't know. This is the very first time, I think, he gives a little bit of empathy to the people in the room. Yeah, and gives the slightest hint that there may be something else at work right now. Cut back to the flashback. Do you have anything you want to say here? I'll stop. Well, it's just a practical question. I talked before when we were discussing uh, U.S. reactors like Three Mile Island that there's a lot of monitoring devices you would think you would want in the core that aren't there. Do you think in an RBMK reactor they have any device that tells you how much xenon is building up at any given time? You would think they need to. <laughs> I'm willing but, but, to bet money they don't. Well, they don't. No, they absolutely don't. Because uh, actually, and this is the show shows this, but it's actually true to form, is that when they could not get the temperature back up, and this comes up later, they start to figure out there's xenon in the core. Yeah. Because I'm doing things that normally would jack this core up. I mean, this is their job. Mm -hmm. They regulate this thing eight hours a day, or 12 or 14, or whatever the fuck the Soviets work. 
the Spencer hours, I call it. Uh, but but they knew there has to be something wrong here, and the only thing they could think of is Zenon. Now it makes sense, right? That hmm. Zenon would would be there, and so this is a question I have for you, Spencer. Hmm. Do you think that when Dyatlov was sitting there, he's talking to Brokhanov, and he says, "Yeah, you can keep it at ten hours, half power. It's going to be no problem." Do you think he was aware? of how much Xenon would actually build up and poison the core and he just didn't care? Or do you think he's actually like a little bit more incompetent than maybe the show plays him off to be? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I, I would prefer to assume that this is a weird thing to prefer to assume, but from what we've seen and from what we see the rest of the people he's working with, that he was aware of the risk and then just kind of shrugged it off because he wanted the promotion the same way everybody else did. That's that's what I think is probably the case. But it's possible he's just that level of incompetent that his level of knowledge about how an RBMK reactor works is just baseline functional. I would think that he would at some point say, it's Xenon, and then he would give what you're... Well, I guess he couldn't do that. Yeah, we'll get to it later. But yeah, I mean, he, he gives no indication that he knew that there was Xenon poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um or Xenon that had built up, which they call poisoning of the core as we go through this. But let's let's get back to the flashback or the, the recap, which goes to a flashback, which is Akimov huddled over the control room monitoring the reaction. He's coaching Toptonov on how to reduce the reactivity in the core. They're trying to get to 700. Shithead Datloff is barking at them. They aren't going fast enough. And Akimov, for the first time, really kind of goes at him hard. He says, we are following the protocol for reduction rate. Like, we you got to be careful when you're <laughs> you're taking a reactor so far out of how it was designed you know the stability that it was designed to have you're we're taking it way out 3200 down to 700 to which Dietloff does not give the slightest shit nope Akimov and Tuptonov slowly placing control rods in the reactor core to slow the reaction down drop it lower but once they get it about 770 it starts dropping very rapidly oh you craters why? Well, because of the xenon poisoning. They're doing the sort of off-the-cuff calculation of there's no xenon in the core, so the reactivity, all those things that create the reactivity, the positive co- uh, void coefficient, the, the nuclear fission created from that enriched uranium, is going to continue to jack up that reactivity. So they've actually inserted more of those boron control rods than they should have, considering all that xenon that is there. And how, am I, how, am I, how am I doing? You're doing great. And Akimov... <laughs> Akimov comes to the conclusion that you just reached pretty quickly. Is that as this thing is cratering, he immediately turns to Dietloff and says, we did everything right. I think maybe the core is poisoned. Yep. And Dietloff just immediately throws it back on them. It's like, if you knew the core, if you thought the core was poisoned, then you didn't do everything right. I know. Such a you stupid fuck. line. Because it, he's, he said, well, if you, you're so smart that you knew it was poisoned. Well, he didn't know it was poisoned until he put the control rods in a way that should have got it to 700 and it got it to like 512. I mean, it's also notable. This is just a bit of a thought to have. Do Akimov and Topdoff even know that the core has been sitting at 1600 for the last 10 hours? No, no. And, and, and because they don't, shout out to Akimov, right, for piecing that together. Yeah. But he probably, that, that like, that's like, you start to think about it, like a nuclear reactor, for all of the craziness that happens to Chernobyl Reactor 4, there's only a few elements that really affect reactivity, and it's built that way. Right. That, that they want to have just they want to limit the variables that increase or decrease reactivity so that the calculation if something gets off is a lot easier to do yeah and it's a, I mean, when you're looking at what you have to believe are limited possible variables that could variables that could be at work this is the most likely one i'm gonna go with that we're seeing again how competent some of the people are in this room and how either 
incompetent or willfully blind Dyatlov is. Dyatlov is a fucking shitbag. That one, that that one's universal to either of the options I presented. It's not exclusive. <laughs> Akimov then starts his mantra of "We did everything right." We talked about that before. Yeah. Akimov starts brainstorming ways to get the reactor back up. Akimov says uh, he comes up with turning off the local automatic control, going to global. Do you know what that means? I don't. Doesn't sound good though. That to turn that kind of thing off. Well, and this comes up later. My understanding is what they did is they created a completely manual process. They overrode the computer that, because like most of the time, these control rods going in and out, it's a computer doing that calculation. Yeah. It's not just some guy sitting there saying, oh yeah, F3 needs to go down, F6, you know, like you, they are monitoring their computer doing that. So what he's saying is, well, if I want to get this jacked, the reactivity jacked way up again, the computer's not going to do it because it doesn't make any sense to do it. So I've got I've got to I got to manually override this thing, which you know from everything we know of Akimov is something that he would never want to do on his own, and that's why he delivers the lines in that sort of like oh, I guess I could do this like it's possible <laughs> do it go all right yeah and Dyatlov is now reading in the riot act Akimov finally again kind of snaps he says I apologize for this unsatisfactory result because well just to, just to explain where we get is that the moment they do this it just craters to zero or craters to like 30 before it just finally stops right yes exactly uh so when they and and, and it's unclear if actually there's a cause and reaction there that actually taking it to local automatic control instead of global actually precipitated that drop i, I would imagine so. i don't either i i think that it was on the way down they hadn't had a chance to do anything manual yet. Um, and so it's just, it's a lot of confusion. Um, and, and Akimov says, I apologize for this unsatisfactory result. Akimov goes to shut it all the way down, making the point that they don't know how much Xenon is in there. Saying, hey man, our protocol is when this thing craters, we shut it down. We spend the next 24 hours slowly creating that reactivity again, building it back up and getting it stable. And that, that's a very true True to form way you handle reactor that after it's gone into cold shutdown or even just you know been scrammed, it is a slow process to bring it back. Once it has gone down to zero, you don't bring it back up to normal operation quickly. Otherwise, you're asking for trouble. Dyatlov says, "Nope, we're continuing the test." He says, "Raise it to 700." I believe that this this raise it to 700 here. That order is the first, I would say, actually criminal act that he commits. Mm-hmm. Like, that's criminal. Like, he knows better than this. All right. Everything else was incompetent, was in violation of regulations. It would have resulted in some kind of slap on the wrist civil punishment. At this moment, there's a level of gross, terrifying negligence that you can just scarcely even imagine. Yeah. Akimov says if they fall from 80% and Dyatlov says, no, no, we feel we fall from 50%. So they're, they're citing a, a statistic here. I don't really know what it is. Do you? But they're basically saying the process by which you can bring the reactor back and from what point it is. And Akimov is saying is that, you know, from if we fall from like 80% or whatever else, we can't increase it. And Dialov is basically just saying, no, we fell from 50, so there is no rule on poison that says we can't do this. And Akimov is looking at it, that's dumb. 50 is worse to fall from there. If we'd fallen from 80% operation, it would have been, if we, we still would have had to follow this procedure. Exactly. So he's, he's basically arguing on the margins like, well, no, it's it's worse than you said. And there's no rule for this. 
so therefore we're good. But the fact that there is no rule for it is beyond the pale. Like that's this shows you're in uncharted territory here. Yeah. Um, and then that's when um, Akamov drops this line, Comrade Dyatlov. I apologize, but what you're saying makes no sense. And Dyatlov. Anything you want to add here? No, it's just it's nightmarish to see Dyatlov basically saying because we're in a scenario that it's worse than they ever could have imagined us being under any reasonable degree of you know predict- predictiveness. Therefore, there is no rule, and we can do whatever we want. I don't know the mental thought process capable of that. I've never experienced it. Yeah. Atmoff says, raise the power. Akamov says, no. Akamov is real close here to being heroic. And this is where we're going to get in this conversation. But he caves when Dyatlov makes the point that they can simply find someone else to do it and make sure Akamov never has a job again. Mm-hmm. So, Spencer, let's have the conversation. You want to go first? You want me to go first? What you what would you have done in Akamov and Leonov? Chaptanov situation. I mean, I've been in scenarios before of where I've gone to my bosses and basically just said, I disagree with your decision. I don't think this is the legally correct path, but I've still made the argument when they ordered me to do so. I've never done a scenario, though, of where what I, what I was ordered to do I thought was criminal or dangerous or wrongful. And I really can't imagine in this scenario... I mean, it would have been a hell of a compelling threat and probably would be even more of a threat of living in the Soviet Union because they could really fucking make it happen. But I just don't see myself doing this. If I truly thought this is imminently dangerous, though one of the advantages I have over them is I know fully what could occur. Did these guys, I don't know if these guys could have really known what could have occurred if they proceeded with the test. And I think that's one of the biggest gaps in us saying this is that we have so much more advanced knowledge about the ultimate risk than they do. Yeah, I mean, my thought here is... Um, Akamov probably was still thinking in the back of his mind, we have AZ-5, we have the, the button that shuts it all down. So none of them knew that a reactor could actually blow up. So what happened is so beyond what they ever could have imagined, but he knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, I'm not going to talk about actual current politics. I'm going to talk about, like, let's say in a dystopian world, there was a leader of a country who did really crazy fucked up shit. And people around him had to make the decision well, do I stay around him and try to make the best of a bad situation or leave and let somebody else come in here who's just going to do whatever he says? Mm-hmm. I feel like Akamov made that calculation. He said, well, he'll do that. He'll kick me out and he'll get somebody in here who just blindly does it. So I might as well try to like influence him the best I can. And the only way I can do that is stay here. So I think I would have done what Akamov did. And I also think I would have done what Toptonov did because he didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah. I mean, that's a very fair point. Is this, as you said, that Akamov is probably the most competent guy to do the job and certainly the only one there that could probably do the job or anything, if anything as well, also protect Toptonov from Dyatlov's direct attention and wrath. So yeah, I mean, you may well be right. That's that's a reasonable enough thought process to take, and not knowing what could be the worst-case scenario really limits his array of options in his head right now. So I have a question for you. Do you think... What do you make of Toptonov being 25 years old and being in this position? I mean, what, that's a failure of the Soviet state on some level. I'm just wondering where. And I mean, you're obviously you're speculating, but like, is it that they're stretched too thin? They have too many nuclear reactors and like not enough like experts. Is it like a pay thing? They just want to pay him shit because he's new. It it's a really confusing thing. I mean, he, it's a. I'm sure there are plenty of young reactor plant workers that are put in some more situations than him. There are plenty of young people that are put in anything for their first major real job. 
there's no, I mean, he, it's even worth noting as well that he's on the nighttime group. It's probably supposed to meant to be the easier job. Less active demands, less constant monitoring, less working the grid that would be expected of the daytime operators. So for a new worker in that position, that seems more reasonable. There's just no way he could have known or they could have known that he'd be put front and center on this kind of test. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think I think it's, you know, the night shift was probably like a training <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Because I mean, um, I mean, that's when people are using less energy, right? So they can kind of, they can, they don't have to ramp it up as high. Yeah. And it also could be part of the reason that we see that Akimov is so close at hand for him is that he may still be under some kind of training under an immediate superior. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, so we go to Akimov asks him to record his order. You talked about this earlier. Uh, Dyatlov smacks the notebook out of his hand, again tells him to raise the power, and he lights a cigarette. Tell me. Uh, you as a manager, in relatively similar position to Dyatlov and in a completely different company, have you ever just thrown binders at employees, slapped things out of their hands, continually, constantly, probably from what we see of their reactions to him, over a period of years, just verbally abused them? Is this the normal way that middle managers go, no, higher, higher level managers go about their day-to-day -day operations? Um... Well, you can call me a middle manager. That doesn't offend me. I, that's what I am. Um, you Dyatlov, are. Dyatlov seems higher up. So he's higher than you. But see if you can imagine what it would be like to be him. Okay. Um, you mean the Klobuchar? Sure. <laughs> sure. Well <laughs> the, said. The, the, the throw binders at people? No, yeah. that's fucking unreal. And it, 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 you know, the reason, I mean, and I'm not breaking any ground here, but the reason you don't do this shit is you don't get the best out of people when you treat them like shit. Mm -hmm. you, you got it. Your, your whole point is to get the best out of people. And people have different ways of doing that, but obviously just this culture of fear, which exists in a lot of places and clearly exists oh, sure. in this control room, is not going to get the best out of your employees. So it's, a, it's fucked all six ways to Sunday. We, we can see it in their reactions. They're constantly feeling like they're about to wake an angry bear behind them. They're on edge. They're nervous. They're freaking shaking as they're going about their jobs. And this just appears to be the normal way that people have to work around him. Man, what a piece of shit come back to the trial <laughs> sorry hold on yet again more good radio with my coughing uh, i'm, uh, you, I'm you, boris i'm boris i was about to say that you've gotten so into the character you're having the same health effects uh, sorry sorry the guys all had to cough uh Dyatlov offers the line that he wasn't in the room when he raised when they raised the power legasov says where were you and roose bolton not so gently reminds him that he's a witness not a prosecutor and so he asked the question um which, I mean, is fair, right? I mean, that, yeah. that's like a point of order in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. He asked Yatlov where he was. Yatlov says he was on the toilet. Uh, Lord Bolton references the first-hand accounts from folks who were in the room, all of which consistently say he was in the room when they tried to raise the power. Uh, he offers this from Lino Tuptanov. I knew what Dyatlov ordered was wrong, but if I didn't do what he said, I would be fired. Said one day before he died. Um <sighs> And, this is and I just got ahead of my notes here because Boris starts coughing. Yeah. Uh, can't seem to get it under control. Uh, he gets up to leave the room. And it's clear that Boris is like probably like the highest up person here. Mm -hmm. um, they make pretty clear a few times that he's kind of the main party official that's directing this. That he's really the one that's in charge of the judge and in charge of the proceedings occur occurring in the order that they want them to. Yeah, because when he has to walk out, the you know, Roose Bolton kind of gives a nod to the judge and the judge orders the court to be recessed for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Legasov walks out to find Boris just sitting. This is probably my favorite scene of the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do probably way too much actual quotes, but I just, 
I love it. I, I think it's incredibly done. Uh, just amazing piece of writing, and it really brings together. It's a nice bookend on these two characters who have gone through a hell of a lot together. Mm-hmm. Br- brothers by fire. Just like me and you. <laughs> you know, I lose key parts of our history, but if we were doing some kind of Chernobyl-like scenario, I wish I could have remembered that, because it sounds like it really would bring us closer. <laughs> uh, Boris starts by giving a little history lesson about Chernobyl. He says that it used to be just, and this is his words, I know these are offensive words, this is his words, uh, Jews and Poles. Uh, the Jews were killed in pogroms, and Stalin forced the Poles out. Spencer, do you know what a pogrom is? A pogrom is essentially an act of uh, state-ordered or constructed or allowed genocide. Yep. Uh, probably the best example of a pogrom is what happened in Rwanda. That would be a very large-scale version. I mean, a lot of the pogroms yeah. that happened in uh, the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire beforehand were happening on a local community kind of basis of where troops would run in and devastate a particular community of uh, some ethnic or religious minority as part of almost like a, an ongoing campaign of terror or a structural issue of moving them out of areas that they were no longer deemed appropriate for. But, mm-hmm. no. Is it, yeah, it's basically like a state-sponsored riot. Like, it's not this necessarily just the state doing the extermination. Mm-hmm. They actually enlist the local populace to assist with it. So if you look up the actual definition, they will describe it as a riot. Uh, but it's it's not a riot in the sense of it's complete a tar- chaos. It's a targeted yeah. riot. Right. Um, Boris then explains that the Nazis came. After that, and they killed whoever was left. But after the war, people came here to live anyway. They knew the ground under their feet was soaked in blood, but they didn't care. Dead Jews, dead Poles, but not them. No one ever thinks it's going to happen to them. That's when he holds up the bloody rag. And what we expected all along, we've had some clues, is he's sick. Legasov asks how much time he has. Boris says maybe a year. I call it a long illness. It doesn't seem very long to me. I know you told me and I believed you. But time passed, and I thought, it wouldn't happen to me. I wasted it. I wasted it all for nothing. Nothing? Do you remember the morning when I first called you? How unconcerned I was? I don't believe much that comes out of the Kremlin, but when they told me they were putting me in charge of the cleanup, when they said it was serious, I believed them. Do you know why? Because they, they put, put you in charge. charge. I'll be like yourself. I got my lines, oh, yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know why? Well, because they put you in charge. I'm an inconsequential man, Valeria. It's all I've ever been. I hoped that one day I would matter, but I didn't. I just stood next to people who did. There are other scientists like me. Any one of them could have done what I did. But you? Everything we asked for, everything we needed, men, material, lunar rovers? Who else could have done these things? They heard me, but they listened to you. Of all the ministers and all the deputies, the entire congregation of obedient fools... They they mistakenly sent us the one good man. And then my line of the friggin' episode, for God's sake, boys, you were the one who mattered the most. Boris picks up a caterpillar, looks at it, says, Beautiful. I think that's something you do when you know you're dying. Yeah, the little things. Yeah, it's the stuff that, like, we just ignore, that you would just say, oh, wow, look at that. Like, you're trying to take everything in, right? I would think. Um, And he just notices this, this really gorgeous caterpillar. And I agree with you. This is one of the most powerful scenes of the entire show. This is an incredibly earned moment. If we've seen the arc these two have been on, how far apart they started, how close they've come. And this just moment of absolution that Legasov is able to offer Boris here that, no, 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 you don't, you're not seeing this. We could not have done this without you. The scale of this was beyond any of us, beyond any of our abilities, beyond any of our influence. You made that happen, and you need to know that right now. 
it's just so per- pristinely perfect. They go back inside. Yulana gives Boris a really caring look. I think the three of these folks, uh, Boris, uh, Yulana, and Valeria Legasov, they've, they've all developed a bond. Clearly. Legasov is watching the scientist. He's called back up. He starts, the time is 38 past midnight. The reactor is nearly shut down. They don't know it yet, but they're screwed. At this point, Xenon is still being created, not being burned off, and further poisoning the core. Um, This is really dangerous for a lot of reasons, but the primary one is, as you pointed out, they have no measurement of how much Xenon is in the core. So the idea that they could figure out how to regulate the reactivity (laughs) is just, it's no, they can't do it. Throwing darts at a friggin' reactive wall. Yeah, and actually, there's a great quote by Legasov, um, actual Legasov, not not the fictional character, hmm. um, who said that. Uh, gosh, where is it? Um, I'll just tell you. Kind of, I don't I think it's. I don't think I have the exact one, but he basically sure. says it was like people tinkering with uh, airplane engines when they're in the air. <laughs> That's a wonderful way of putting that. <laughs> yeah. Um, go ahead. Almost, you ever read the Darwin Awards? Did you ever read any of those? Oh, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite ones where a guy found a landmine in his backyard and wanted to assemble it for scrap metal. So he got a sledgehammer and started hitting it repeatedly. Oof. And when that didn't break it apart, he got in his car and drove over it. Oh, what happened? It, it blew up. He died. Darwin Awards are only for people who died. If you live, you can't get one. Jesus. Um, anyway, so Xenon is still being created. Uh, the reactor isn't hot enough to produce sufficient steam. The only way to safely raise power is to do it slowly over 24 hours, but Shithead Dyatlov isn't going for that. Akimov and Toptonov are the only, have only one thing that they can do to raise the power, which Dyatlov is ordering them to do. They start manually pulling the controlling rods. Again, normally this would be a computer system doing it. They have overridden the computer system, and they're just pulling these control rods up. Power doesn't move, so they begin pulling more and more out. 211 control rods were in reactor four. They completely withdrew 2005. Now there are no brakes on this car. This is the the, the brake, the thing that if you're going down a hill, you kind of have your foot on the brake to slow everything down. That's completely off. Yeah. And bear in mind, this is also a car where you've got a nuclear accelerator powering it. Fuel went cold, so the negative temperature coefficient, which slows the reaction at higher temperatures, is no longer there to slow the reaction, right? This is the thing that, that, that sort of divine thing about the nuclear reactors is that as the, as the reactivity increases, the temperature increases, and as the temperature increases, the reactivity decreases. It's a really great thing. That's all gone. Still, xenon is, poisoning is so strong that they could only get it back up to 200 megawatts. So at this point, the only thing keeping the reactor in line is a massive amount of xenon and water. They're the only two things that are stopping that uranium enriched, the enriched uranium and all those firing uh, neutrons mm-hmm. from just spiking the energy, right? So we cut back to the flashback, and Akamov reports that they can only get it to 200. Dallas says, okay, we'll run the test at 200. What the fuck? You're going to run it at 200? <laughs> It was already going to be, you know, a very unusual and difficult experiment for those involved. Now you're adding in the extra danger of an inherently unstable core at one less than one third what you intended to. Sure, fine. Let's see how that goes. Akimov makes the cogent point that the power is so low that whatever test results they get will be useless. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that this is kind of he didn't say it explicitly, but I'm, I'll explain. He's saying that because the power would never be shut off at 200 because they never let the reactor get to 200 to begin with. Yeah. 
So right. it, it doesn't it doesn't help them to know what would happen on a test when they start at 200 because it's never designed to be there. And one of the other guys even points out that they have steam at so low of atmospheres that it could barely turn the freaking turbine. So how are they going to measure how long, if whether it lasts a minute, when the existing steam level they have can barely even make it move? Yeah, there's no residual energy when it's not freaking moving. So they cut back to um, the courtroom. And Legosov says the problem they were facing at this point wasn't solvable. Point of no return. The power was too low. The water was too high. The results would have been useless. But Yetlov didn't care. He just wanted to report a completed task. A lot of scope creep here, right? You think of an organization where you say, okay, well, what is our primary purpose? And it's an organization in that control room. What is their primary purpose? It's to safely regulate that nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. But Yatloff is so interested in the test that he loses that primary, that's primary scope, primary point and goal of his organization. And so now he has got this thing off the rails. He goes through the various folks working through the facility. Basically, there's a lot of folks. These are folks, I didn't write all their names down, but there are a lot of folks that were just in, not in the control room, but were around the facility just kind of monitoring things. And none of them knew what the hell was going on. I find that really difficult, too. Like, you didn't even tell them. Like, and think about how freaked the fuck out you would be if you were just sitting there and all this stuff starts happening and you had no indication at all that anything weird was going on that night. Do you think it's part of the whole, you know, they need this level of deniability because they've lied to official party officials that they did the test. So they want to limit the array of people that know that they're doing the test now as much as possible. I don't know. I don't know. It could be that or it could just be just they didn't think to tell them. <laughs> I think that's in play they didn't too, right? need to know. At 1.22 and 30 seconds, 1 minute and 15 seconds from the explosion, a computer system within the facility, the Skylar computer system, which would normally jump in and reintroduce the control rods slowly in a way that makes sense because it's designed to do that, but it's currently being overridden, and it spits out a report, which Toptonov gets, and it recommends the reactor be shut down completely. Mm-hmm. This is pretty primitive AI, but it got the right answer. Um, Legasov said in uh, over in the core. Legasov said in 1987, the control room operators manually controlling the control rods at this time was quote like airplane pilots experimenting with the engines in flight. That's the quote that I wanted to tell you about. You got it pretty airplane close. Pilots experimenting the engines in flight. I think it's pretty great. Akimov gives the report to Dyatlov, who dismisses it. Akimov again says we did everything right. This is his mantra. He's just saying this over and over to himself. Yeah. They shut it down. They go forward with the test. Uh, the turbine, of course, stops spinning as li- much as it, it is spinning. Um, pump stops sending water into the reactor. Now there is nothing regulating the uranium. And then in a second, everything flips. You know, it, uh, Legosoft uses the analogy of a slingshot. They pulled the slingshot back. Now they just let it go. Everything flips. Because, you again, we were talking about all the things you do to regulate that reactivity. Speed it up, slow it down. Make sure it's just right so that propeller spins at just the right amount to give us this consistent, clean energy. None of those things to slow down the reaction is there. So everything flips. Reactivity immediately starts to go up. The remaining water is being converted into steam, creating a void. Positive void coefficient, boom, back on the table. Further increases reactivity, increases heat, increases steam, further increases reactivity. The power is rising. There are no controls in place to stop it. The power is just so you know that reactivity counter, that, that amount of energy that's coming off that core is just brrr, it's just flying now. Toptonov notices the power surge. Dyatlov immediately blames everyone else. He is the worst fucking manager. Like 
Everyone. He, his first thing he says is, what did you do? Not, how do we fix this? What can we do to stop this? Who can I blame for what's occurring? But if it's, it's so interesting when you think about kind of all of the things that regulate the core. And in an effort to increase, they, they had all this the xenon poisoning, which artificially reduced the reactivity. Now that and so burning they did, it off. They did all these things to try to increase that reactivity. And eventually they got to a point where, okay, all of that stuff that was reducing the reactivity is now off the table and you have everything at a 12. Right. It's like you're trying to force your car through like a, it's, it's caught on like a tree or something. And you don't really realize how thin this tree is or how, how close it is to break. So you're just gunning it. And when that little branch that's holding your tire up just shatters, you're at 90 already. Yeah, it's a, that's a very good metaphor because that's exactly what happened. Um, and we cut back to Lezikov. He's explaining the scram, the shutdown button, which in Soviet reactors is called AZ-5. Uh, AZ-5 is a shutdown button. It's supposed to be a fail-safe shutdown. If the reactor goes crazy, you drop all the control rods in there, the boring control rods, it reduces the reactivity, it shuts it all down. You spend the next 24 hours slowly increasing that reactivity, getting the reactor back online. Mm-hmm. They press it. All the controlled rods go into the core at once. Legasov pauses, says, but. Yulana senses it's coming. But Dyatlov breaks in. <laughs> so this is the moment, I think, that Legasov was going to start actually explaining, hey, there's, there's other people at fault here, not just you three. But Dyatlov jumps in and starts yelling, tell your lies. And wildly enough, um, the upset of the episode, Dyatlov hits on something. He points at him. He says, he knows something. She knows something. He takes a shot at Boris. At this point, Brokhanov is even telling him to shut up. But he did hit on something. I think he kind of pieced together that Legasov knew maybe a little bit more than what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And he's seen it with Komiuk before. He knew that Komiuk was on to something with respect to this ACID-5 thing. Probably didn't figure the details, but it's a logical deduction from him. Yeah, I agree. It's also in his nature just to blame anyone else other than himself, too. Man, but he happened to hit on something here. But the judge says they'll go ahead and close down. Legasov looks at Boris, kind of panicked. Question for you, Spencer. Does Boris know what Legasov is going to do? I think he suspects. I think he suspects. And I think he is a good enough friend that as much as he's tried to protect him, he knows what his friend wants to do right now, and he's going to support him, even if it means him walking to his metaphorical death. I agree. Lord Bolton says that any additional testimony is not necessary, and then Boris stands up. Let him finish! The judge is shocked, but allows it. Yet again, an indication that Boris is kind of directing traffic here. Yeah. Legasov explains that Dyatlov broke every rule. He did these things believing you could always press AZ-5 to shut it down. First bomb from Legasov. He explains that the shutdown system had a fatal flaw. Dyatlov looks up. This is when Dyatlov starts to piece together. Oh, this is kind of changing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Legasov explains that Akimov pushed AZ-5 at 123.40. That's five seconds before the explosion. The control rods go back into the reactor. Then Legasov goes ham. He explains that the rods are made of boron, which do decrease reactivity. That is a regulating feature of an RBMK reactor. But the tips, the tips are made of graphite. Graphite accelerates reactivity. To which the I judge... All the ahead. judge's response is he just looks at him and is like, why? Why would they do that? That's just... I know. It's, <laughs> but what's so interesting to me is that if you looked at Lord Bolton during this... He's very concerned because I think he and I think a lot of people in that room knew the answer before Legasov told it. Yeah. And he says, well, this point, no going back. I'm going in. Mm -hmm. For the same reason our reactors do not have containment buildings around them, 
like those in the West. Ooh, burn. Mm. For the same reason, we don't use properly enriched fuel in our cores. Seems like a problem. For the same reason, we're the only nation that builds water-cooled graphite-moderated reactors with a positive void coefficient, RBMK reactors. It's cheaper. Oh! Now the crowd starts moaning uncomfortably. The judges look shocked. Lord Bolton looks disappointed. He looks like, oh man, this is all fucked. And if Boris is surprised, he damn sure isn't showing it. So that's to your point. I think he did suspect what Legasov was going to do. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about? I mean, because this is this is the point where everything pivots, right? Yeah, this is where we are in a just a rush for the next five minutes as he delivers his testimony and we see it performed live. Yep. Legasov goes on to explain that when the rods are reintroduced to the core, the reaction which was already skyrocketing, increases because every bit of water that was still left in that reactor immediately converted to steam. This destroys, a, this destroys a series of fuel rod channels, which effectively lock those boron control rods in place with the graphite tips continuing to accelerate the reaction. So they, the graphite tips haven't gone down low enough to stop accelerating the reaction. Then he drops this one. Chernobyl reactor four is now a nuclear bomb. Three seconds before the explosion, a worker at the reactor sees the impossible, as Legasov puts it. The control rods are jumping up and down. Now, for some context here, each one of these weights weighs about 350 kilograms, and there are over 200 of them, and they are popping up and down like popcorn. So he immediately understands what a problem this is. He runs in the control room. The reactor continues to spike. The reaction continues to spike. Legasov explains they don't know how high it got, but they know the final reading. Reactor 4, meant to operate at 3,200 megawatts, went beyond 33,000. Then it explodes, and that huge concrete dome covering it flies up off the reactor, actually falls up, it, it falls over the facility, actually, and flips down on its side outside the building. Mm-hmm. Oxygen rushes in, that combines with hydrogen and superheated graphite, and boom, that's the second larger explosion we've seen, that we saw, and that's the one that created the fire. That was such a such a difficult thing for them to to get a handle on in the days and weeks immediately preceding uh, the reaction uh, and the explosion. I've heard people debate before what kind of nature the first explosion was, and they kind of agreed that it was some kind of mix between a steam and pressure explosion, whereas the second one was a friggin' fireball. No, I think think that they're... They're pretty clear that it was it was a pressurized explosion, mm-hmm. um, and that's what just it basically just popped that core that, that that top up off of it. You, know, you think of like a you know, like a bottle of Coke or something you shook up, and the cop the cap just bust off of it. The problem is is that that bottle of Coke when the water touches the Coke, it exploded again, right? So that's yeah. that's the real problem here. <laughs> That's a really good, um, interesting. It's a really interesting comparison right there. I never realized what I was really playing with fate when I'm messing with Mentos. <laughs> don't do that spencer that's bad that's don't don't be a tide pod challenger <laughs> so we cut to the control room uh this is the flashback again they are understandably freaked out back to the courtroom no one in the control room that night knew the shutdown button could act as a detonator they didn't know because it was kept from them judge mentions he is contradicting his own testimony in, in vienna like i said because he lied in vienna this is where boris winces so I think now he knows he's crossed over into, well, they might kill him. Mm-hmm. Legasov points out that there are 16 reactors in the Soviet Union with the same flaw operating today. Three of them are just meters from there. It's still running at Chernobyl. The judge warns him to not suggest that the Soviet state was somehow responsible. Doing so would, quote, trod on dangerous ground. 
Then we get this really, really incredible quote from Legosoft to close this thing out. I'm already trod on dangerous ground. We're on dangerous ground right now because of our secrets and our lies. They are practically what define us. When the truth offends, we lie and lie until so we can no longer remember it's even there. But it's there. It is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. That is how an RBMK reactor explodes. Lies. Powerful line. Powerful line. So we cut to the scientist. I can't tell from their reaction if Legosoft got the reaction he wanted. I mean, it's kind of mixed. They were looking down. They were looking away. Some of them did look angry. So I don't know. One of the main things I got from them, they looked scared. They looked frightened. They looked like, I don't know if that was just because of their sudden realization about, oh my God, these, we have dangerous reactors, or more likely in my mind, oh shit, what have you just involved us in? We're at a public trial and you just made us complicit in this knowledge. Legosoft is obviously immediately shuttled away uh, where he sits in a room alone. Very weird cut to what's looked like. Looks like, like a Mickey Mouse replica with a slow pull away and that same menacing music in the back. I don't know what the hell that was. I can't but, imagine they were. I can't imagine Chernobyl was paying Disney proceeds for that little Mickey Mouse. It was weird. I don't know why they, they threw that scene in. But eventually, Charkov walks in. Charkov again, head of the KGB. He immediately goes in. He points out some awful shit Legosov has done in the past. Um, he says that Legosov is no different than any of them. Um, explains he's not brave. He's not heroic. He's just a dying man who forgot himself. Legosov says, "I know who I am. I know what I've done. In a just world, I'd be shot for my lies, but not for this. Not for the truth." Uh, Charkov goes on a rant about scientists, so BJ, be offended. Um, and then he screams, when the bullet hits your skull, what will it matter why? Mm-hmm. Charkov explains it would be embarrassing to kill him, so nobody's getting shot. Says your testimony will be kept quiet. He will live his life, uh, live out what's left of his life, not much. Not as a scientist, but as a no one. All of his accomplishments will be prescribed to other men. Basically telling him, we can't kill you, but we can make damn sure no one remembers you. Yeah, welcome to being an unperson. Charkov asked if Sherbina or Kumyak had a role in this. Legosov says none. I didn't know what he was going to say. Charkov says, after all you've said and done today, I'd be curious if you chose this moment to lie. Counterpunch. Counterpunch by Legosov. I would think a man of your experience would know a lie when he hears one. And he isn't really lying here. They may have been aware after he started to do it, Kumyak may have encouraged him, but they did not know what he was going to do. No, and I think that I think that um, Legosov was very careful about that, too. He didn't want to tell them what he was going to do. No, and I think Charkov would have known if he was lying right here, and Legosov knows that. Charkov, Charkov explains that he will never talk about Chernobyl again, him being Legosov. You will remain so immaterial to the world around you that when you finally do die, it will be exceedingly hard to know you ever lived at all. Legosov says, what if I refuse, Charkov? Why worry about something that isn't going to happen? Arc huh. words of the series. And yeah, Legosov's reaction is wonderful. <laughs> Why worry about something that isn't going to happen? That's perfect. You should put that on our money. <laughs> Anything you want to talk about with this interaction? No, I, I love the setting. It is literally a room with a drain. Legosov's looking at this like, are they going to cut my throat here? They've, they've literally put me in a bathroom where either they would hang meat to drain. Is this how I end? This is his thought process before Charkov even walks in the room. Yep. We see Legosov being ex- escorted into a car. Boris and Yolana are looking on from afar. They drive him away. Then, to end the series, we hear Legosov on tape. To be a scientist is to be naive. 
we are so focused on our search for truth, we fail to consider how few actually want us to find it. But it is always there, whether we see it or not, whether we choose to or not. The truth doesn't care about our needs or wants. It doesn't care about our governments, our ideologies, our religions. It will lie in wait for all time. And this, at last, is the gift of Chernobyl. Where I once would fear the cost of truth, now I only ask, what is the cost of lies? So it starts and ends with the same line, what is the cost of lives? Mm -hmm. There you go. We have a wrap on HBO's Chernobyl. And from there, we see a wonderful outro of us seeing the pictures of the real people with some information about what really happened to them. And it's just all the more rending to just ground this again about this has been a series about real events. Yep, and so I think that's a great way for it to end. They actually show what little footage we have of the actors, uh, not the actual actors, but the people involved mm -hmm. in Chernobyl that were um, that were portrayed in this miniseries. And I'll go through um, what they kind of show in the, or they explain in the post-credits, if that's all right. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Legasov killed himself two years to the day of Chernobyl. Audio tapes of his memoirs were circulated. His suicide made them impossible to ignore. In the aftermath of his death, Soviet officials finally acknowledged the RBMK design reactor flaw and the reactors were retrofitted. So in, in that last act of killing himself, he was able to finally force the hand of the Soviet Union to fix the RBMK design flaw. True, true with the coda that we think now it may have actually been uh, two years and a day afterwards, but close enough. Nah. You want to call me if, this is like this is like you saying you cried, right? Yeah. It's a better story if you say you cried instead of missed it up. It's a better story if we say it's two days to the uh, to the to the day of the explosion. We got to Yolana Kamyuk. She was created to represent all the scientists who assisted uh, Legasov with the cleanup efforts. This is uh, we've talked about this before. Boris Sherbina died on August twenty second, nineteen ninety, four years and four months after he was sent to Chernobyl. It wasn't a one year disease for him. No, it was a little interesting with the trivia I looked up about him as well, is that he actually became a very key and important hero in dealing with another disaster that happened about a year, a year after the trial, of where uh, he, was in, he was one of the key guys who was responsible for coordinating the Soviet response and ultimately the world response to the Armenian earthquake, where thousands of people died. And he was named specifically by Gorbachev because he'd done such a great job in managing Chernobyl. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, he, he really did do a great job here. And he, he was able to do it in such a way that fixed, to the extent that you can, the immediate issue, but also still played within the party lines. And he, he also was doing his work on that only a few months after Langosov died. And I have to believe that was particularly rending about him to the degree he was even allowed to know about it. Yeah. Uh, he, I'm sure he heard because, I mean, his death was, uh, Legasov's death was circulated widely in the scientific community. True, true. Uh, Brokhanov, Dyatlov, and Fomin were sentenced to 10 years hard labor. <laughs> this is great. After release, Fomin went back to work at a nuclear power plant. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Nothing's altered. Uh, Dyatlov died from radiation-related illness in 1995. We see a shot of him with his legs, which show <clears throat> really serious uh, radiation burns. Mm-hmm. And that's the real guy. He, he really and, did have those burns. And he was utterly unrepentant throughout years of life after the incident. Yeah, not surprising there. Valery Kodimchuk's body was never recovered. This is one of the workers um, that was just, you know, working at the facility. Um, I think it's just interesting that he was never recovered, and he's permanently entombed under Reactor 4. Mm -hmm. The firefighters' clothes are still below the Pripyat Hospital, and they are still dangerously, really dangerously radioactive. And I like that they even show us a dosimeter going close to them. Not touching them, going close to them. To show yeah, us it was like, what was it, like 33, 34, something like that? It was, it, 
reaching danger enough levels, I was feeling uncomfortable with them even getting that close to check. Yeah, Ludmilla Ignatenko suffered multiple strokes after her husband and daughter died. She was told she could never have a child. She did, and she lives with him to this day in Kiev. Mm-hmm. Everyone on the bridge of death died. Which we, we talked about early on in the show is the, is the common urban legend story harder to prove? But it is it is a story that they're very cagey with how they say this too. It has been reported that none survived. That's true. Just harder to confirm. Yep. Um, well, you know, I tend to think that that's true because in that book, um, Voices of Chernobyl, mm-hmm. the lady and she actually she tracked down Ludmilla. She tracked down a lot of these people that are being portrayed in the show, and she couldn't find anybody. Who was on the? You know, she found like she she's the the one that actually I think broke the the news that the divers were still alive. Which is again, how in the and they're going to bring this up. It's like the next fact, one of the next facts they do. How in the fuck did those guys not become heroes of the Soviet Union after that happened? No, no idea. Four hundred miners uh, worked to help prevent a meltdown. A hundred were estimated to die before age forty. Mm-hmm. It was reported that the three divers died. In fact, all three survived after hospitalization. Two are still alive today. Mm-hmm. Over 600,000 people were conscripted to serve in the exclusion zone. The Soviets did not report how many actually got sick or died. The containment region of Ukraine and Belarus, known as the exclusion zone, encompassed 2,600 square kilometers. That, uh, for us Americans, that's about 1,000 square miles. For a little bit of context, that's about seven times the size of uh, the city of Raleigh. Damn. North, North Carolina, which is the capital of North Carolina. Seven huh. times the size of Raleigh. 300,000 people were displaced from their homes. They were told they could come back. They were told it was temporary. They never returned. Mikhail Gorbachev presided over the Soviet Union until its dissolution in 1991. In 2006, he wrote, quote, The nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl was perhaps the true cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is a line that you've referenced on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. In 2017, a new safe confinement zone, uh, safe confinement was finished at Chernobyl. Reactor 4 it cost about $2 billion. It'll last about 100 years. And after that, they're going to have to figure out what to do. Because it's, it's not, in 100 years, it's not going away. Like, it's going to be like literally hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, of there being dangerous radioactivity at Chernobyl uh, Reactor Core 4 that they're going to have to continually figure out what to do with. It will get safer, but it will not be safe. Cancer rates in Ukraine and Belarus spiked after the explosion. The highest spike was in children. We end with, we do not know how many people died in Chernobyl. Most estimates range between 4,000 and 93,000. So that, that, just that estimation range, which we really don't know. And I think part of that is due to, well, what is considered a death from Chernobyl? In 15 years, if you die from lung cancer, if you're a smoker, is that a death, right? It's kind of hard. Yeah. The official Soviet death toll, however, is incorrect. Unchanged since 1987. 1987, unbelievable, 31. End of Chernobyl. We are a wrap on the Chernobyl series, Spencer. How are you feeling? There's, I feel great. But I just need to say the last line, though. The coda, the dedication for this, actually did legitimately render me choked up in memory of all who suffered and sacrificed. And that is the true coda of this series and what I think turned Russia around on it. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, we have gone through... All of the recaps of all five episodes. Any concluding thoughts you want to get to before we go to the best line of the episode? And then you hit us with some Wikipedia knowledge. We've both watched some great TV. A lot of it on HBO. We've been impressed by the... We're truly in a golden age of television with respect to the high-quality material that's coming out. This one is still in a near, damn near in a league of its own. I agree. 
I agree. I put it as the best miniseries I've ever seen. Um, and I would put it in the top maybe five to eight range of television shows I've ever seen. It's a little hard to compare it with like a normal fictional yeah. show that runs six or seven seasons or something like that. But, I mean, as far as how much I enjoyed watching it, the rewatchability, the interest I have in it, um, and how much it really taught me. I, I mean, obviously, Spencer. I mean, I, I didn't know a fucking neutron from an atom from a cell from a nothing when we started this thing and now i'm sitting here telling you how an rbmk reactor works so i I got a lot from it you know i gotta say there is a a nuclear power plant well several near you it's also one down near me in miami if you're looking for a side job i think you've got a level of training they might be able to make use of yeah i'll go in there and i'll talk about xenon poisoning and positive void coefficients (laughs) i'm sure i'm sure they're gonna ask you're you're sitting for the interview and they're gonna ask you about 20 minutes in why is all your knowledge like 30 years out of date well, that's what I need from you guys, okay? All right? <laughs> I've shown that I'm a good canvas. You just have to paint on it, all right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, but yeah, no, I, I mean, obviously, I've spent a really long time. We were laughing before we recorded this podcast, uh, and I, I told you my notes were nine pages long. <laughs> and I do it not because, you know, I feel like some moral, like some obligation to do it. It's because the material is so rich. Oh, yeah. You can write nine pages of notes and actually, I think, have an engaging, conver- interesting conversation about the content. It's just not something you can breeze over. I mean, in discussing this content, this is why it makes this next segment one of my favorites, just so we can go back through the quality of the writing of this show. But are you ready to decide, sir? What was the best quote of the final episode of a wonderful series? I am. Okay. Uh, Would you like to go first or shall I? I've tried to limit myself. I've only done about four or five this time. Uh, Yeah, I can do it. Um, I'll start with... um... You went to the doctor yesterday? How was your health? You don't know? <laughs> That's just the... Del- the actor who plays... Uh, Charkoff is the name? The KGB guy? I'm blanking on the name again. Is yeah, that- Charkoff. Yep, Charkoff. He does yeah. wonderfully in the role. There's just a level of smug malevolence, malevolence about him that's just great. Um, first one for me. Uh, Komuk. Uh, she's pulling out two, two books. These are the ones who are still alive. Twelve books. These are the ones who are dead. They died rescuing each other, putting out fires, tending to the wounded. They didn't hesitate. They didn't waver. They simply did what had to be done. Lay yourself. So have I. I went willing to, willingly to an open reactor. I've also given my life. Is that not enough? Komuk, I'm sorry, but it is not. Okay. <clears throat> I will cut to something about a test. Yeah, that's a, that's a good That's a, a dark line. Yep. Uh, I'm, since we basically already read it, I'm just going to reference it. The entire Sherbina Legosov back and forth as they're sitting outside talking about his fate and what he did is yep. just magnificent. I agree. I don't know, man. I think I'm about done. Do you have any more? Uh, just a couple quick ones. Uh, you already did it, but Legosov's final speech about lies and the nature of lies is great. Uh, both when he does it at the trial and when he ends the episode doing his audio recording. And my last two, why worry about something that isn't going to happen is just hauntingly horrible. And I agree with Legasov that that should be, that based on what we've seen in the show, that should be on Soviet money. And then finally, just because it really did affect me in memory of all those who suffered and sacrificed is such a great coda to the entire series. Oh, this is a tough one, man. You got I usually go in. I usually go into the segment knowing exactly what it's going to be, and now I, I really don't know. I'm having to make the decision on the fly here. Ooh, not easy. Best line of the episode, Chernobyl, episode five, the finale is 
why worry about something that isn't going to happen? Yeah, yeah. That, that it's a it's such a great line because it really t- it's set it so wonderfully encapsulates a mindset that allows this kind of thing to happen. You want to know honorable mention? Um, please tell me. We did everything right. Oh yeah, we didn't even mention that one, but God, that is haunting. Yep, that was going to be my number two, but no. Why worry about something that isn't going to happen? That's got to be it. That is best line of the episode, Chernobyl, episode five, the finale. Spencer, mm-hmm. do you want to get into a little Wikipedia spiral? I am going to get into a Wikipedia spiral. And to start, I'm going to have to go with something that has nothing to do with nuclear reactors, at least at first. Um, about eight years ago, in March 11th, 2011, the fourth worst by magnitude earthquake in recorded human history occurred off the northeastern coast of Honshu, the largest island of Japan. To say this thing was massive... BJ really... knows it well. Does he? I, I always... He, remember? So, a little inside joke here, folks. Our friend BJ, who does Mangum Reads and Whiskey on the Weekends with us, he always talks about traveling to Asian countries. This yeah, is true, actually. Say, ever say he's going to go to Germany. It's always like Shanghai or some <laughs> shit. This, this is a valid point. Forgot about that, actually. Yes. <laughs> Uh, this earthquake measured a 9.0 to 9.1 on the magnitude scale. Um, to put that in perspective concerning the amount of energy that was released, we talked about uh, when the Chernobyl reactor blew its cap, it was at uh, 33,000 megawatts of thermal energy. That's about 33 billion joules per second of energy. When this earthquake occurred off the coast of Japan, it released 3.9 and then I want you to add 22 zeros to the end of that in joules of energy released. That is 9,320 gigatons of TNT. The largest nuclear device we ever detonated was 50 megatons. This is an enti- so many orders of magnitude larger than that, we can scarcely imagine it. To put it into conception, that's about the same energy that would be, be released if you detonated 600 million Hiroshima bombs at the same time in the same place. This is a level of energy that an area of the coast about 500 miles long, about 500 kilometers long, about 200 kilometers wide, shifted upward 8 meters at the same time. This altered the axis of the Earth, thereby shortening the day. That's how large we're talking about the energy that's released as a result of this thing. And as a result of that... Insert, Insert joke about shortening the day, me not liking to work here. (laughs) thank you for that joke we appreciate it the result of this massive mega thrust earthquake of where essentially to put it in perspective two plates are meeting off the coast of japan the pacific plate is going underneath the japanese plate as a result of the pressure that builds from that the pacific plate can every now and then shift up it's not normally supposed to do so to this degree off to this massive of a coast at the same time result of that was a colossal earthquake and a tidal wave of, of levels that have been scarcely even imagined in Japanese history. The closest they can imagine to it was records they have of an earthquake happening back in the mid-800s in terms of how large this thing was that descended upon them. Something like 500 square kilometers of their coastline were flooded. This wave at certain points reached heights of 134 feet in terms of how far it forced its way up mountains. As a result of this, something along the lines of 16,000 people were killed, and about 2,500 people are still listed officially as missing and are almost certainly dead. It is, in terms of the economic effect, the single worst natural disaster in human history, with damage assumed by the World Bank to exceed $230 billion. 
Now, this is a, a disaster that Japan is still recovering from. It is something beyond any way that they could have prepared for or expected. But how does this relate in any way to nuclear reactors? I feel like I'm going off on a tangent. Before this incident, Japan was one of the most effectively nuclear electricity-generating nations in the world. More than 30% of their electricity was coming from nuclear power. And they had plans to increase this up to 40% at the time of the incident. Nuclear power was popular. The memories of Chernobyl had faded. The memories in Japan of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were from generations past. People were embracing this as a, as a clean method of combating global warming, a clean method of producing electricity without any degree of aerial pollution, without excessive thousands of tons of waste to have to deal with, with like coal or anything else. There was, there was a hopeful nature of the industry that hadn't been there for years. And this is exactly the same time in the United States that we see the first new generators coming online again since Three Mile Island. Nuclear industry was at a high point. And in Japan in particular, the, the agency that was responsible for regulating these nuclear power plants was also, and this is a weird thing to do, the, the uh, agency also responsible for promoting nuclear energy. That's a level of conflict of interest that you probably shouldn't have. And we see that played out with what occurs here. At Fukushima plant, Fukushima Daiichi plant, which is about 250 kilometers north of Tokyo, about 150 miles, on the uh, day of this earthquake, when the tremors started, the plant immediately went into scram mode. Uh, well, to give you a little background of the plant, this is actually one of the larger plants in the world. It has six reactors with a total megawatt of electricity capacity of 4,200 megawatts. To put it in perspective, uh, the Chernobyl reactor we see, when we see that 3,200 megawatts, that is thermal energy that results in 1,000 megawatts of electric, electricity capacity in terms of generation. So Fukushima plant is colossal. These six reactors, oddly enough, are the oldest reactors I have talked about. They were all built in the early 70s based on General Electric designs. Uh, a boiling water reactor General Electric design, which is different than anything we use in the, in the United States, typically allows for lower levels of maintenance and lower levels of risk with control, but still, by design, a perfectly safe form of reactor. As said, when the earthquake occurred, all of the three reactors that were in operation, the other two were in cold shutdown, one was actually empty as they were refilling it, immediately scrammed and, and uh, shut down entirely. They also, once the, react, once, the design, once the earthquake occurred, were separated from the outside grid. And so automatic diesel generators, like we see on Chernobyl, turned on immediately. No minute delay here. So they could provide electricity to the core so they could continue to flood it with water. So they continue to keep the, react, the reactor control rods in place. And they continue to keep these spent fuel pools where we put nuclear fuel after it's been in a core and lost its reactivity, but is still hot and, re and radioactive for years afterwards. Keep all of those cool and safe. And then an hour after the earthquake, a tidal wave hit this particular facility. Now, this facility had built a seawall to hold off the risks of tsunamis in the event of earthquakes, because Japan is a very earthquake-prone nation. This seawall was 18 or 19 feet tall. The tidal wave that hit this plant was 48 feet tall. It very quickly swept over the entire Good facility. God. Yeah. Jesus Christ. It... Look, Spencer, when I talked about wanting to put water in the core. Didn't mean, didn't not, mean. Not, not what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we need to keep water on the core. God goes, I'm here to help. <laughs> here you go. Here's a pool. Uh, quickly, when this tidal wave descended the facility and just completely encrusted the seawall, it had a few effects that they did not plan for. One, it promptly sweeped away all of the diesel generators on the three active reactors. They were outside the buildings or they were in non-floodproof buildings. 
Now, they had planned on some degree of risk and that they'd put three additional backup generators up on a hill outside the facility, well out of range of where this tidal wave ultimately crested. So that in the event anything happened to these immediate generators, this was built under new 1990s regulations they had to follow, they could switch to these and this would provide for whatever reactors otherwise were lost their uh, cooling electricity. Problem was, the switching facility that let them switch from the main generators to those additional backup generators was in the same building as the main diesel backup generators. A non-floodproof building. That's, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. So that got swept away at the same time as the diesel generators did. Now, they've got other backups. Uh, the newest reactors, Reactor 6, has two diesel generators that are in a floodproof building and survive the tidal wave fine. They were able to connect that to Reactor 5. Both of those were in cold shutdown, but you still need to keep them cool. So both yep. of those are doing fine. They also have electric backup generators that even in the event they don't have the diesel generators going, they can switch to those for eight hours. And that's it. They have no other plan. And so after eight hours... Then it becomes a race, right? After that, they're trying to get as many backup, many backup generators as they can of any kind, any kind of electric batteries they can to keep water flowing through these cores, keep fresh water in these spent fuel pools as long as possible. They're able to do this for about 24 hours. And then they got nothing. They got nothing at all to keep these things from cool, to keep these things cool. And so over the course of the next few hours and days, three of these generators go into full-on meltdown. And when I say full-on meltdown, we talked about with Three Mile Island that meltdown occurred and liquid melted, uh, melted um, fuel rods pooled at the bottom of the steel containment. In this case, they not only pooled at the bottom, this corium, as it's called, not only pooled at the bottom of the, of the steel containment or reactor vessel, they melted through it. And then they started melting through concrete. And this reaction of what little water remained and this melting reactive fuel and the air led, led to, and, and also mixing with these zirconium control rods, led to hydrogen gas being created, which interacted with air, which as we saw in Chernobyl, led to an explosion in four of these facilities, the three reactors and also the one that was empty because it was connected by various pipes from the other ones and so built up its own hydrogen fuel. Now, unlike in mm. Chernobyl, these are actual pro proper modern Western facilities. So it blew off the sides of the buildings, but the actual control, encapsulated control vessel did not blow up. But these hydrogen explosions did release radioactivity and also the fact that the cores are freaking melting down into the water table. And here's a fun fact. We don't honestly know at this point how far they've melted. They may still be melting, we're not sure. Uh, led to radiation being released both into the air and out into the and out into the water around because this entire facility is still flooded from this tidal wave. Now, what is the effect? What is the effect of this? Well, best estimate that we can have is that as a result of these meltdowns, as a result of these ex hydrogen explosions, somewhere in a range, and these numbers are loose as hell. These numbers vary by the year, vary by the day, vary by the source. Somewhere between 10 to 20% of the radiation that was released in Chernobyl was released at Fukushima. Most of that, something like 80%, was released directly over or into the ocean. Now, that's not great, but it's better than it being released over land. Yep. It also means that since the particular currents alongside this particular plant on the coast of Honshu are some of the strongest in the world, Quickly, this radiation was spread everywhere, across the Pacific, all around. 
Now, that may sound bad, but it's one of the first maxims I ever learned when I was getting my environmental degree and taking my courses was, the solution to pollution is dilution. It's probably one of the best things that could occur. <laughs> if you take something that's really bad and you spread it out everywhere, it's suddenly not that bad everywhere. The solution to pollution is dilution? Yeah, that is a maxim. Is that essentially? It's like a schoolhouse rock song. I know. I think I probably warned you from like that, a rocker's modern life or something. But it's true. And the ocean currents effectively diluted this around, at least diluted some of the worst of it. Now, there's some issues still. Uh, again, three separate reactors have melted down. The radioactivity that is still coming off these things is astronomical. They finally were able to measure in 2017, about six years after this incident, because they couldn't get in close enough to check in reactor two, one of the worst ones, that the pressure control vessel is probably, gener probably radiating about 210 sieverts of radioactivity. To put that in perspective, eight, that's 210 per hour, eight is a fatal dose that no amount of medical treatment will help you with. So... These pressure control, these control vessels inside this thing are radioactive as shit. Even the reactor building around them is probably, they estimate, about 80 sieverts an hour. So getting in there to even examine how bad they are is really damn hard. Here's what we do know, though. That as a result of what occurred at these plants, the Japanese government ordered a 20-kilometer radius around the, a 20-kilometer exclusion zone created around the plant of a mandatory evacuation. For 30 kilometers out, they allowed for voluntary. Led to the evacuation of about 156,000 people. That evacuation order has started to lapse to, has lapsed to a certain degree. Some people started to come back to their homes. And even the 20 kilometer zone, people are allowed to go in there and work to a certain degree. But as they're increasingly horrified to admit, A, they haven't been able to clean up these facilities. It will take 40 or 50 years at best. And B, they're still leaking. They're still leaking into the groundwater. They're still leaking into the ocean. And they're not really sure where or what they can do about it. See, what they've been able to determine is that groundwater, through various structural cracks that resulted from the earthquake, from the explosion, from everything else, is leaking into the bases of these facilities and interacting with the corium that is melted through there. And while they've taken incredible steps to control how much groundwater is getting in or flowing through, including building a freaking underground ice wall to help arrange this, as well as massive seawalls and everything else, it's still happening. It's massively reduced from where it started, but it's still happening. Now, for the human effect of this, it is, again, incredibly difficult to estimate. We're still very early on. We're still debating with Chernobyl what the human effect of it is, so it's hard to say just eight years in the future. But we know a few things. We know that one plant worker has died of cancer, which various tribunals have clearly said was a result of the radiation exposure he suffered from this incident. We know that 55 or so people died during the evacuation of heart attacks and stress and everything else, which honestly, is, for a lot of these evacuations that have occurred as a result of radioactivity in history, is the most common health effect. Because even in the middle of this, this massive-scale earthquake disaster, people cited that once they heard radioactivity, their level of stress went up, self-reported, by five times. Just because that's what's been conditioned into us to fear about this kind of thing. Well, uh, yeah. yeah. Spencer, after doing, this, after doing this podcast series with me, can you imagine if there was some sort of nuclear accident in, like, say, Raleigh? I, or Chapel Hill? Man, there is a plant, <clears throat> there, there's a plant that's right there. That might be the thing that finally gets me to visit you. <laughs> <laughs> Come all the way down to Florida I'd to get away. I'd show, up with, I'd show up with a big suitcase and say, hey, 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 roomie. 
Yeah, but they credit they credit for like Chernobyl that in terms of the massive reduction in life expectancy among the evacuees, like life expectancy re- reduced by like eight or nine years. That it wasn't just due to radiation or other things; it was also just due to the stress of it, the fear of it. Same thing happened here, but in terms of the radiation exposure, the level of radioactivity that actually went over the surrounding community was pretty minimal. Most of it was blown out to sea. Most of it was actually contained in the facility itself, or most of it went straight into water, which then went out into sea. What and that's because a lot of the, the safety features around how they constructed these plants, correct? You got it. The fact that unlike yeah. in Chernobyl, of which just a kind of open reactor without any degree of pressure control vessel, steel control vessel around it, concrete around that, extra level of steel around that, extra level of concrete around that. Ours are built to, even when a hydrogen explosion occurs and blows off the walls, the actual core is undamaged. Much, much better built facilities we're talking about here. But not, a certain amount of radioactivity did get over people, primarily those that were in the evacuation zone. Best estimates that they can say is that of young children or children who are about to be born, that they have about a 1% increase in their risk of developing cancer over the course of their lives. That's about the best estimate they offer. Interestingly enough, it's slightly higher among girls than boys. Now, they've been engaging in a very aggressive monitoring program of particularly children in this evacuee community. And there are conflicting results so far to say whether this initial estimate is going to be accurate. Some scientists have reported that there is a surprising number of growths on child thyroids, that there is a surprising number of diagnoses, something like 150, 160 of children in these evacuees of either thyroid cancer or signs that they will suffer from thyroid cancer sometime in the future. Now, were they getting the iodine pills? I imagine they were. I don't actually know that for sure, but I would imagine they were. But the reasons for that are uncertain. Several people pointed out that, well, we weren't really testing the broader community, and these rates probably don't seem necessarily higher than the rest of the areas that weren't evacuated. And also, if you look really close at people's thyroids, like 67% of everybody has growths. Thyroid just does this. That's what it does. So it's harder to say for certain whether these events are a result of actual abnormalities resulting from the incident or resulting from something else, or whether it's just that we're checking better in a way we haven't before and checking closer because we're worried about it happening. Either way, we agree that we have to keep checking, we have to keep looking because we're not sure what could result. Now, you may look at everything I just told you and basically conclude, oh dear Christ, what could they have done? It was a 48-foot wall of water. But... I've already highlighted to you a few of the problems that they had with respect to this plant. One was regulatory, just ridiculous levels of corruption and oversight. That if you have your nuclear regulators directly in bed with the nuclear industry to promote it to the public, you're not going to get a thorough level review. You're not going to get them to engage in greater safety standards because it's going to lead people to ask, why are those necessary? So that is a structural problem with Japanese government that they have realized needs to be corrected. There's also basic errors in the operation of the plant that are basic errors in design that your diesel generators need to be in flood-proof buildings. That just makes reasonable sense when you have a friggin' seawall there designed to stop tsunamis. Or Yeah, that one seems a little obvious in retrospect, right? That one seems pretty obvious in retrospect. Or if you're going to put backup generators up on a hill, make sure the switch device is up on the hill or in a flood-proof building. Because if it gets carried away in the exact same thing that gets rid of the main backup generators, you're out of luck. There's also other things that are revealed too. Uh, point number one, they were advised on at least three or four separate occasions of the risk of tsunamis and ignored them. 
They were advised this by local officials. They were advised this by the government. They were advised this by American experts. They were advised this by the International Atomic Industry, uh, Energy uh, Agency. And they still did not do anything about it. They still thought, eh, 18, 19 feet, good enough. Works fine. Sure, we've got historical evidence of waves far cresting over that, but eh, it's not going to happen. Well, I will give a little bit of a, a olive branch here to the Japanese government in that the tsunami warnings that they get, I mean, I know, I know this was a caused by an acute incident, right? The earthquake. Yeah. But they are routinely told. Like, I mean, it's it's way more tsunami warnings than you would ever expect. And the information that they are given is so wildly variable. Oh, yeah. Very that, much so. That they have to build in. Like, I, I think in this situation, they should have said this is a mitigating circumstance. This is different because it's precipitated by an earthquake. Mm-hmm. But I understand how they take the the tsunami warnings with a little bit of a grain of salt because they, they're literally getting one every like four days or something. Uh, it, it is very much part of the basic background of their lives. Um, it's also the case that when these warnings came out saying tsunami, tsunami, they would press, when they saw the scale of the earthquake, they pressed the worst tsunami possible button to warn people. And for most individual regions, that was 15 footer, take cover. <laughs> they didn't have a button for that. They did not have a button to say... I mean, it said 15 foot plus. That's what they had. It's like saying 3.6 was the radiation reading. Yeah. It's the result they had. Yeah, exactly. They gave us the number they had. Now, again, these things seem like, you know, they were obvious mistakes. But how apparently obvious can we make these? Two other, there are two other major um, nuclear reactors that are in the immediate hit zone by this earthquake. That were in operation at the same time as Fukushima 1, Fukushima Dashi. They were Fukushima 2, and there was another one that was farther up the coast that was called Onagawa plant. Both were uh, smaller facilities, but two things to each of these facilities meant that they had zero problems despite being hit by waves just as large, if not larger, than the one that hit um, Fukushima. At Fukushima 2, every single backup generator was in a waterproof building. They were also not in the basements of the of the buildings. They were above, they were substantially above ground on topper floors, because they realized the risk and took precautions necessary to avoid this. At Anagawa, which was even which was the closest to the uh, earthquake, it was directly affected by the tremors. It actually withstood a 9.0 earthquake and just tanked it just fine. When they built it. On advisement from the community and in dedication to be extra precautious, they built their seawall 50 feet tall. And so when it got hit by a 45-foot wave, it didn't go over it. Barely All any, good. Barely any water went into the facility whatsoever. And again, the backup generators there were in flood-proof buildings. And so these two other reactors at the exact two other reactor facilities at the exact same time suffered nowhere near the effects because they were designed to deal with a situation they knew could potentially happen. This was a known risk that this company was actively avoiding taking precautions on. And that's continued through how this company has gone about dealing with this disaster of where Tesco, I think it's called, I'll double check that as I'm talking to you, has actively and continually lied or led to incorrect reports about the amount of radioactivity being released, about the risk, TEPCO, TEPCO, about the amount of radioactivity being released into the water, whether radioactivity is still coming into the water, whether radioactivity is even coming off the plant, the rate of radioactivity, anything they've proven inept or directly withholding the truth about these operations to the point that in 2013, the government finally just said, you know what, fuck it, we're not going to trust you anymore with this, which they probably should have done two years earlier. 
it's one of the things of where we talked about with Chernobyl about whether a Western country would confront a similar disaster to a similar degree so rapidly, like literally throw human bodies into the situation. In a Western country, we again, we, it took us eight months to bring the bring the uh, affected cores back into cold shutdown, which is a it's, a it's a weird term. Cold shutdown literally just means you can put water on them that doesn't immediately boil off. That's that's a measure of success, but by December we got we got them to that level. We've still not cleaned them up. They're still releasing radioactivity. And given that we obviously in the West cannot send biobots in there to fix this, Japan is engaged in a massive program to design robots specifically capable of working in these facilities because the ones that have been loaned to them by the U.S. military while still surviving the radioactivity lack the dexterousness necessary to actually operate anything. And the ones that Japan has originally sent in shut down pretty quickly from the level of radiation. Now... Last thing I'll go into, because I've gone into excessive detail, as I tend to do. Japan, as I said, at the point that this disaster happened, had about 30% of its electricity produced by nuclear power. Within two years, that number was zero. All of its plants had shut down. Come on. All of them had moved to coal uh, and natural gas. I hate these snap reactions. 80% of the Japanese public immediately after this, after this accident said that they no longer trusted nuclear power and wanted no nuclear power in their country. And that level of resentment still holds to this day. They've brought about four or five reactors back online since then, and each of them has been with a nonstop battle from the public itself. The government itself has had to try to advise the people that we are the host nation for the Kyoto Accords with respect to finding a way of various nations around the world controlling our greenhouse admissions, setting a measurable degree so that we have a future for our people. And we can't do that unless we have at least 22% of our electricity generated by nuclear power. But it is a non-stop fight because once this has been seen and once the media has been going on and on and on about various potential risks and various potential threats and various lack of trust, which obviously TEPCO has not been helping with, I mean, I re it's been so terrifying to read some of the articles that people are just making up about this. I mean, there was one article from a health society that was saying that as a result of Fukushima, 14,000 people a year are dying in the United States. And that was run with on news channels. That's the level That's the level of response and the level of instinctual fear we have of radioactivity. And the moment anything like this happens, you get another 30, 40-year period where nobody trusts nuclear power anymore. Now... You and I had both talked about at the start of this program that in spite of everything that we'd watched, in spite of everything we know, in spite of researching these disasters, we're both pro-nuclear power. Can I ask you why you say that? Why are you in favor of nuclear power? Sorry to put you on the spot. No, that's okay. Um, because I fundamentally believe we have a responsibility to reduce greenhouse emissions, and I think that nuclear power is one of our best ways to do so. I think that it can be done safely. It's been done safely for years and years and years across many plants um, and cleanly. But I mean, obviously there, there are risks associated with it, mm -hmm. but I, 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 I see it as a, uh, a type of energy that just makes a hell of a lot of sense because mm -hmm. it, again, it's, it, it, it's self-containing. It doesn't emit anything. It's, it, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Like I've talked about it, just kind of, you have these increased reactivity, decreased reactivity, you keep the balance going and you create this energy. It's clean. It's predictable, which is really great. Um, it doesn't require resources, continual resources from the earth. And I, I don't think you throw the baby out with the bathwater when, when something like Chernobyl or Fukushima happens. I think instead you say, how do we make this better? How do we make this safer? Mm -hmm. How do we stop this from ever happening again? 
Yeah. Uh, you. I, I think that is the mature response to go about it. It's just not the instinctual response of where people see something of this scale in a way they can't understand. I mean, that's what makes radiation so intimidating is you can't see it. You can't know it's there. You can't know the threat. You just suddenly someone has now got something that they're going to suffer from cancer from in a few years in a way they can't control or can't predict. That's scary. I accept that. But I also understand that global warming is the biggest threat that's affecting us as a, as a, as a species ever in modern times. It's of a scale and it's of a potential repercussions that we can scarcely understand or prepare for. And if you look at the United States, 60% of our emission-free capacity of electricity is generated by nuclear power. It has its problems. It has its risks. We've seen, obviously, the disastrous effects that can happen if it's not handled responsibly. But by a lot of estimates, hundreds of thousands of people worldwide are dying from coal use just from the pollution every year. That we know this in North Carolina, that you talk about these spent fuel pools and all this nuclear fuel, whatever we're going to do with it. We do a lot of coal in North Carolina, and we know up in the mountains that all those thousands of tons of coal ash that are produced every year by a coal power plant are just put in the open air because they don't have the same level of regulations about them. And these things are dangerous. They're full of arsenic and, surprise enough, radiation too. And they're just connected to major waterways and every now and then can break and make it that we can't yeah. swim in the new river for a few years for, at, at thereafter. Yeah, or poison, you know, uh, water basins that we're actually pulling, you know, for public water. I mean, we've had that, we had that issue right here in, in Durham. Yeah. The coal ass issue. Uh, it, it, it completely poisoned some, some water that we were relying on for uh, public water consumption. So, yeah, to your point, I mean, they're, 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 you're not going to get a type of energy that's large scale without some level of risk. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I've heard but, many... the, but the risk can be mitigated. It can be controlled. And I think that what you do is you look at what happened in these situations. They were all preventable and we work to prevent them in the future. You don't just say, Hey, we had an airplane crash. Nobody's flying anymore. You say, okay, well, why did we have an airplane crash? Let's fix the design of the airplane. Yeah. But we are much better as a people, as our psychological response to things, to responding to a disaster rather than planning for the next one. And nuclear power clearly can be a key part of the solution for dealing with an otherwise insurmountable problem if we're willing to accept the risks and plan to prevent them. And it just seems like we struggle as a society to come to terms with that. But that's all I got in terms of my last spiral of Wikipedia searching, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it, Spencer, and I really enjoyed doing this podcast with you. Again, this is an amazing miniseries. I think we've done some really good pods, at least pods I've enjoyed. People seem to be liking them. They're listening. So that's it. That wraps up Mangum Talks TV, our first foray into the Mangum Talks TV podcast channel. We finished up Chernobyl. I got an announcement. I'm letting the people know, Spencer. Mm -hmm. We're doing, mm -hmm. we're staying with HBO, uh -huh. and we're doing Succession. I know nothing about it. I'm excited. Yeah, if you haven't seen Succession, it is a preposterous show. It is entertaining. It's funny. It's in, it, other than being entertaining, it is nothing like Chernobyl. This is a <laughs> hard pivot for us, and I can tell you that these long-winded seven-eight page, you know, reads of uh, the recap and quotes and breaking into the science, you're going to get none of that with Succession. So yeah. if this was a little heavy for you, we got the other side of the pillow coming for you because Succession is just going to be fun, lighthearted, uh, and entertaining. Season two is going on right now on HBO. We're going to go back to season one. We're going to try to do it quickly. Um, and get you up to speed. 
but I have seen every I've seen every episode. I watch it week to week. I love it. Spencer knows nothing about it, and we're gonna have a blast doing it. Oh yeah, and as you said, our format will change as a result of our material. We're nothing if not flexible. And this show, from what you've told me, I think we're gonna do this about three drink minimum when we record, and I'm looking forward to that too. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Succession, check it out. We're gonna start here in maybe about a week, 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 two weeks. Mm-hmm. We'll do episode one of Succession. We'll blow through. I think they're ten episode seasons. We should be able to finish it up by the October November time frame, and then we'll pick a new show. But until then, uh, Spencer really enjoyed doing Chernobyl with you. Thank you for all the work that you put in. Uh, and that's all I got. Anything else from you? No, it's been a blast, man. And I can only look forward to what next round of wonderful material we're going to present to our fan base. Absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening. We're going to be back with episode one from season one of HBO Succession in a couple weeks. See you.